don't need that heroin And I don't need that cocaine I don't shoot no acid in my eyes I'm not bathing here in lidocaine I ain't robbing no pharmacy I don't do any more harm to me I ain't drinking up any alcohol I ain't wondering if this powder contains any fentanyl I'm not smoking crack and directing traffic in an intersection naked I don't need to get some weird infection I'm not puking in my neighbor's sink I'm not crushing up some Vicodin in a sausage link shoving it in my I'm just listening to Dopey it's a podcast always available like the memories of my past I'm just listening to Dopey 24-7 7 days a week 365 days a year doodles to Chris good so bad good so fucking bad it's good so bad Flushed all my drugs down the toilet Why the fuck did I do that? I miss them No, I don't Yes, I do Just kidding What? Hey, hey, hey It's time for Dopey And I'm gonna sing a song for you Chris gonna show you a thing or two. You'll have some fun now with me and all the gang. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by Oro Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Western Los Angeles, in Malibu. Oro was created by the great Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission to help addicts and alcoholics overcome their afflictions through the use of connection and compassion and not using control. First thing we need to say about Oro is that everyone we know that has been there has benefited from going. Nobody can shut up about what an amazing experience they had. Their staff have decades and decades and decades of experience in treating alcoholism, drug addiction, and co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. They would make a spa blush with envy surfing, sound bath meditation, yoga, equine therapy, and of course the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. If I was relapsing, I would want to go to Oro. Check them out at ororecovery.com. Check them out. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Sober Buddy. Sober Buddy is a sober app 
It is a platform that helps you get and maintain your sobriety. It is a community of addicts and alcoholics helping each other out. And it is more than that. It's challenges. It's ways to promote your own sobriety on social media. But most importantly, it's connection. It's a connection with other sober people and uh, a group of professionals trying to help you to stay sober. I run a Zoom for Sober Buddy every Wednesday morning. This week was one of my favorite Zooms we ever did. We matched up addicts and alcoholics with other addicts and alcoholics to create actual friendships and connections. Check them out at the App Store or the Google Play Store or YourSoberBuddy.com. You will not be disappointed if you are looking for a great tool in your recovery. I want to tell you guys about a great podcast. It is called Recovery in the Middle Ages. It's all about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, books, movies, the latest in new medical research, and they talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. If the neighbors only knew. Find Recovery in the Middle Ages on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, anywhere you get your podcasts. It's all there. Recoveryinthemiddleages.com. Check it out. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. I'm incredibly excited to be here. DopeyCon is is upon us. It's coming up. It is in like three weeks, and our lineup is 90% locked in. We have confirmed Mackenzie Phillips, fucking Jessa Reed, Brandon Novak. We'll be getting the Dopey Medal of Freedom. Dr. Drew is coming. And crazily enough, Hank Azaria of The Simpsons is coming. Nick Flynn, poet, Dopey Poet Laureate. Lily Taylor, Aaron Carr, Ray Brown. There's some other special guests that might be coming. My dad, of course, will be there. Linda. It's going to be very exciting. Katz is going to be cutting pastrami. I, I hope you guys are sitting down. It looks like everybody who buys a ticket to DopeyCon, brace yourself, will be getting an Othello cookie. And that's not a black and white cookie. That's an Othello cookie. That's a two-sided black and white cookie that is black and white in every bite. And you guys will be the first large group of people to get an Othello cookie. I'm incredibly excited for DopeyCon. If you didn't get tickets, get them. They're going to be gone. Get them before they're gone. You don't want to miss out. Today we have a very special guest. Uh, his name is Steve Poltz. I met him out in Park City, Utah. When I talked to him, I was like, this is my favorite interview I've ever done. Steve is a master storyteller fucked up drug addict alcoholic it's it's a real it's a real win i uh i was at the park city song summit was incredible the first night i was there they gave us this very lavish dinner and lucas nelson son of willie nelson played 
and this guy named David Margulies, who runs a music festival in California, who I met last year, came up to me and said, I need to have Steve on the show. I figured I didn't really need to have Steve on the show. But by the time I was done talking with Steve, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so happy I got Steve on the show. So thank you, Dave, and thank you, Dave Margulies, and th not thank you, me. Thank you, Dave Margulies, and thank you, Steve Poltz, and thank you, uh, Park City Song Summit. The Park City Song Summit was out of control, incredibly special. Just fucking crazy town because uh, I got to do my talk with Chuck D and DMC, which was just... I mean, it was it, it went really well. <clears throat> it was humbling to be in a conversation with two of the most important people in the genre of hip hop, which I love. And then the Grandmaster Flash talk was insanity. It, it didn't go well, but in the end, I mean, basically, I didn't do great. But in the end, fucking D, I called DMC on stage, and he rapped over Grandmaster Flash on the turntables, and I guess that was the first time that's ever happened. So it was a historic hip-hop moment at the Park City Song Summit, and I'm very uh, proud and grateful for my opportunity to be in it. It was fucking crazy. And as for Bob Weir, okay, as if you guys remember, I years ago when I was on Heroin, I had gotten the opportunity to interview Bob Weir, and I did a terrible job. And at the Park City Song Summit, I wanted to make an amend to him, but to be totally truthful, all I really wanted to do was get him on Dopey. And as I was preparing, and there was a guy there who was friendly with Bobby. And as I was preparing, it was right before the Chuck D DMC talk, the guy said, you should go to the gym. You know, and I was like, what, am I out of shape? And he's like, no, I think you'll find what you're looking for in the gym. And I decided not to go stalk Bobby. I decided the more appropriate amend to make was to leave him alone. Because what the fuck? How many people bother him? All I really wanted to do was was fucking fame whore. You know, you know how we do. You know how I do. I just wanted to fame whore. But I want to say that Bobby's show at the Park City Song Summit with the Wolf Brothers, it's pretty good. It's pretty amazing. They had a horn section. They had a string section. They did, uh, they did Terrapin Station. They did Wharf Rat. They did Ripple. They did... Uh, Friend of the Devil. It was it was it was pretty beautiful. It was a beautiful evening in and out. And um, I mean, he could have played a little faster. He could have ripped up a Promised Land or a Beat It On Down the Line. But all in all, I have to say that Bobby impressed me. And I got an email. I want to read this email before we get to Steve Poltz. Uh, hey Dave, I just finished listening to episode number four twenty nine. And you called on listeners to send in fentanyl stories. And I only have one, and it was during the turn of the millennium when I was 24 years old. First, though, I need to tell you the backstory on how I got myself there. My childhood was a total shit show. My parents were way too young to have kids and know what they were doing. And addiction ran rampant through my family. My parents were married for a few years and called it quits when my dad left Pennsylvania to shack up with another lady who would become my stepmom for the next 11 years in Florida. My mom was a raging drunk and would do shit like drive to the bar and tuck in four or five little me in the back of her car so she could go and get smashed. This kind of thing and more were steadily happening until I was eight years old and she got saved. 
It was a great thing, but as you know, the life of a newly sober person takes some time to work out the kinks. She remarried when I was nine to a guy who had lots of his own problems, but they somehow managed to make it work and are married to this day. We were an incredibly dysfunctional family trying to make the best of it and attended church three times a week. I got a lot of God in those years. I started experimenting with alcohol at age 12 and was an alcoholic by the time I graduated high school. Two months after graduation, I hightailed it back to Florida and got very involved in the rave scene. Drugs were my preference during this time, to the point where I hardly drank at all. These were my trash bin years. Ecstasy and hallucinogens were my favorite, but anything would do in a pinch. One night, I got done with work and met up with my boyfriend of three years at a club. I was a stripper at the time and always got there later than everyone else, so he was rocked by the time I found him. Side note, these were pre-cell phone years, and so that was not always easy. Anyway, that night he acquired Xanax and heroin, the latter uh, of which we, he had never done. Heroin was not something I frequently did, but I had dabbled here and there unbeknownst to him. He was drunk and had taken Xanax earlier, and I had taken acid at work and was good with taking some downers. We were homeless and hotel hopping at the time, so we found a room and proceeded to do the heroin. That night ended in horror, as in the morning I woke up, but he did not. Oh, boy. There's a ton more I could say about this, but for the sake of the original story I'm here to tell, suffice it to say that it was utter hell, and I've never touched heroin since. I tried stopping all drugs, but getting drugs in Florida was too easy, and I couldn't stop. Back to PA, I went. I should have been getting help during this time, but instead I went face first back into booze. I briefly lived with my mom, but she was not happy that I left one bad situation to get into others. The opportunity to leave her house presented itself when I met a drug dealer who wanted to move in with me. I was mostly smoking weed and drinking then and not interested in taking pills or hard drugs. The drug-dealing boyfriend very much was, though. There was a weekend we had planned to go to a fancy corporate house of one of his customers that was a ski resort that was in a ski resort an hour away from us. It was winter in Pennsylvania, so the weather was shit. He put a fentanyl patch on himself, and for whatever reason, I let him put one on me. One minute I'm in our apartment, and the next moment I remember I'm behind the wheel of his Cadillac, pulling into the driveway to the house. There is no other explanation than God drove us there. I have absolutely no recollection of getting the car and certainly not driving the whole hour from home to the ski resort. It was a really dark weekend. I felt like shit from the patch, and when I smoked weed the next day, I felt the fentanyl high again. I'll never forget when we were driving down a country road and I looked over at him and saw a fucking demon face on top of his. I wanted to get out of there so fucking bad, but was stuck with this evil asshole and his drug customers for one more day. Needless to say, we didn't last long after that. He was in general an asshole, so I wasn't surprised when two men came in through the back door in a home invasion and pistol-whipped the shit out of him while I was hiding in the bedroom. That was the final straw for me. These days, I rarely do drink. I rarely drink and never do drugs. There has been a lot of therapy in my life over the past 20 years, and I've never worked a 12-step program. It's something I consider doing, but I'm a mom to a four-year to four young kids, and time isn't something I have in abundance. Maybe it's an excuse. I do listen to Dopey and many other recovery and self-help podcasts, which seem to satisfy for the time being. 
I appreciate the effort you put in to Dopey and love getting to connect, albeit one-sided to other pieces of shit like myself. Thank you for all you do, Audrey in Pittsburgh. Audrey, you are not a piece of shit. Thank you for the story. Um, keep in touch, and you can get some socks. So send me your address, and I will send you some socks. And if you're out there and I owe you anything, send me a message. Come to DopeyCon. I want to tell you this other crazy story that happened in Park City. It's like really affected me. So I'm going to tell it. One of the people that was at, and I think I told it on Patreon in little bits and pieces, but one of the people at Park City was this reggae singer named Modest Yahoo. And Modest Yahoo was from New Jersey, I think. And he became a, a Chabad Lubavitcher. A uh, Jewish person, meaning he had the suit and the coat and the the payas and the whole thing, and he would do dance hall music in the I want to say in the late '90s and the early 2000s. And I was a huge dance hall fan, as many of you guys know, but I never got into Modest Yahoo. But I was always very curious about him, and he was there with this percussionist, this skinny hippie with long black hair, who introduced himself to me as Ezra. And I was, uh, I did my Chuck D and DMC talk and I, I, I didn't feel that good about it for whatever reason, but it was not a big deal. And then I went to a, like they had 12 step meetings. I went to a 12 step meeting and then I was like kind of walking around and I ran into Ezra and his girlfriend and he was like, dude, I love everything you do. And I thought he was making fun of me because he was like, I think he was vaping weed. He was chilling. And I thought he was mocking me. I was also wearing uh, the cat's hat. I'm sorry, the cat's hoodie and the Nick's hat. And he goes, you wear a cat's hat and a Nick's hoodie. And I was feeling very self-conscious. But it turns out he liked the talk. He's like, you're a New York City Jew. And then it turns out, he, you know, he was a Jewish kid and he, he liked me. So I gave him some stickers and I didn't think anything of it. And I went on my way. And I ran into him later that day with uh, ex-Dopey guest and my friend and, and Dopey patron star John Bucati. And he was sitting with him and he's like, he's like, Dave, you got to get Ezra on your show. And I was like, I don't know, maybe I will. And then uh, and I couldn't put it together how I knew him. And John was having all the artists do paintings and he had Ezra do a painting. And I figured it was because Ezra was the percussionist in Modest Yahoo's band. But Ezra's painting was like of a lightning bolt and underneath it said Ezra the Flash and I realized it was Ezra Miller who had played the Flash in the Flash and uh, he's got a very controversial story and I'm dying to get him to come on the show he said he would but now he's not responding to me but uh but maybe Ezra Miller will come on the show. And I want Modest Yahoo to come on the show. Modest Yahoo's lab at the Park City Song Summit might have been my favorite lab. And I got to see him do one song because his concert got rained out. But his song was fucking great. The music at Park City Song Summit was great. The experience was great. If you guys have an opportunity to go to the Park City Song Summit next year, uh, you should go. And one, and one of the things, one of the sponsors of the Park City Song Summit is also one of the DopeyCon sponsors and a Dopey sponsor. They're called the Phoenix. They are a free app that is designed to help addicts and alcoholics have fun. One of the ways they do that is by 
supporting things like the Park City Song Summit and Dopey and DopeyCon. They also have CrossFit gyms all over the country. They also organize hikes in cities and rural areas. They also run pickleball leagues, and it's all free. So go to www.thephoenix.org slash dopey, or just, uh, I think there's a link at the end of the show. Click on that. Go to the Phoenix. If you're coming to DopeyCon, talk to the people from the Phoenix. Check them out. There is a lot of fun to be had. Uh, we're going to do another event with them, I'm pretty sure, in December, a storytelling thing. We all want to have fun, and we all want to try to be in recovery. At least I do, and the Phoenix does, and I know a lot of you guys do. So if that's something you're interested in, check out the Phoenix. And now, without further ado, I want to play one of my favorite talks that I've ever gotten to do. This dude is funny and super talented and super dopey, and here he is, Steve Poltz. His friends actually call him Poltzy. And if I wasn't clear, I want to give a crazy shout-out to everybody at Park City Song Summit. For They were very, very kind to me. They made sure I was eating. They made sure I was sleeping. You know, they fucking—they were they're super cool. So big, big thanks to Ben and Paige and Julia and everybody who, uh, who helped out and, and made it really, really special. Trisha, I bother her for meal tickets over and over again. And Ben is considering letting us, as in Dopey, come back and do a Dopey show. So I want to throw it out to you guys. Who should we do a live Dopey with next year at Park City Song Summit? Rack your brains. Let's figure that shit out. And here is the one and only Steve Poltz. All right. I should let Steve finish eating. Hold on. We can wait for you. I'm waiting, Steven. <laughs> I'm getting sugared up. Dude, before, I'm such a jerk sometimes. Before, we, I took John, the painter, to the bar to get him iced coffee. And the dude, the bartender, was like dicking around, making it like forever. He was on his phone. He was doing this. And, he, and I was kind of complaining. But he didn't, he pretended like he couldn't hear me complaining. And then I paid and, and that was it. You know what I mean? We left. And then just then we went into that bar and the bar was totally full, <laughs> right? Totally full. And I run to the side of the bar and I tried to order coffee from somebody that wasn't that guy. And I order, oh, now I know what happened. The lady suggested that I order two vanilla lattes. And I ordered two vanilla oat milk lattes. The dude was like, we don't have oat milk. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> no, oat milk. And that's why I flagged you down and said, you want regular milk? You got your regular milk. I got it black. And he said, no charge. And I thought it was because he was such a jerk off before. But now I'm realizing it was because he ran out of oat milk. Wow. That's why he gave you it free. Free. Nice, right? I didn't even know this was all happening because I was talking to a couple other people at the bar. So, Well, so, that's, so here. We are at the Park City Song Summit in a, in my swanky hotel room, which is trashed, ironing board. I'm ironing T-shirts because I'm so nervous about my my lab tomorrow. But I'm with singer-songwriter extraordinaire, cosmic entrepreneur, cosmic traveler, fucking festival thrower, the hero of the High Sierra Festival, which is what I'm hearing. That's the word on the street. <laughs> that you're the hero of that festival. It's Steve Poltz, welcome to Dopey. Well, man, I'm glad to be on your show, and I just met you, so 
This is even cooler, and I'm already in your hotel room. I know. It's a nice room, too, man. We're staying in some swanky place here at the Park City Song Summit. There's a lot of rich people here. Right. Do the, the rich people make me uncomfortable, and I say weird things in front of them. Do you have that problem? You seem like you can navigate this better than me. Honestly, I don't know why. I can seriously talk to anybody. I can talk to anybody, too. But do you have you mentioned a lot of rich people though, so you're conscious of their wealth. Uh, you can just tell because of the area you're in and the way it's just Niceyville here. So nice. It kind of reminds me a little bit of when I go to Bentonville, Arkansas, and Bentonville is the headquarters of Walmart, and there's no graffiti, and Mormons. It's not. It's Arkansas, oh. so it's not Mormons, but it's the guy who owns the guy who started Walmart. I mean, he doesn't own it anymore. He's dead, but. His story is amazing. I love stories about people who build something from nothing. Me sort too. of like you, what you're doing with this podcast. I'm not blowing smoke. I, I Everybody equates quantity with quality and all these different things. But you can compare what you are doing with what Walmart did, with what Elon Musk did. Meaning Walt Disney. You're just in the flow is what I mean. And so when you're in the flow, you're not thinking about how shitty things are. And so people like you are blessed to have something that you're really in the flow on and you're watching it grow because it's all consuming. Right. It takes so much of your effort, yet you learn with each episode. And I feel the same way about my career in that I it's been an incremental steps and I'm watching it grow. It's no different than Steve Jobs with Apple or anything. People that are able to build something and watch it grow, it's like, it's a beautiful thing. Well, I mean, it's like we're very fortunate to have something that we want to build up. You know, it's very fortunate. Like, you know, I was I, I think I was on my way out here and somebody wrote me like because I'm doing this lab with Chuck D and DMC and, and like somebody wrote me, can you believe you're doing this? And I was like, no. But then it's like to be a fucked up drug addict and to be paid to go to the Park City Song Summit and interview two of your childhood heroes and to eat and rub elbows and fucking chill, it's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, I think it's good that you're saying that and it's <clears throat> good to take stock of that sometimes and just sit back for a minute and go, wow, right now this is happening. Like this really is happening and this is something, this would not have happened had you not made that forward progress and you know, God bless Chris and everything and what you went through. I mean, it's a lot. And yet, like a phoenix, you've risen and you're and now you're gonna be talking to Chuck D. Like you were about to throw in the towel. This is a success. No, no, story. that was that was yeah. Steve and I have spent the day together. We I think we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. Yeah. Isn't that weird? No, it's beautiful. It's, okay. It's beautifully weird. And uh he didn't know anything about dopey, so I showed him the time sizzle reel. And I haven't shown many people the time sizzle reel. So now, but they do make it seem like I was going to quit, but I wasn't really going to quit. Oh, okay. Right. They did it for sales. No, no, no. I think. Not sales, but as a way of making the story arc. I think that clip, okay, after Chris died, and, and I want to get into your story, but I'm just going to explain that clip really fast. After Chris died, I did a show with the woman who found his body. And then the next week they were having his funeral in Boston and all of his friends rented uh, Airbnb, and I went and stayed with his friends and recorded a show with all of his friends about him. And that's when I say, okay, I guess the show is over now. But I wasn't talking about Dopey. I was talking about that episode. Gotcha. 
So whatever. Steve Poltz is but, a fucking, you're a, a cos- Can I say one last thing? One last thing, yes. I was sitting here watching that and I had to fight back tears. I know. Because I lost a really good friend and I was watching it and, the, and it really affected me and it was really well done and it got the point across and I'm sort of ADD so it was compelling and, it, and I, it, I was like, all I was thinking what was going on was who did the fonts? Who did that? Who put that together? It's really well done. It's not cheesy. <laughs> and What's time? They the got everything time. Ac- across that needed to get across. So you're on your own hero's journey and anybody who can find their own hero's journey, whatever it is, be it as small as it is, we're all on our own little hero's journey. It's Definitely. true. Well, you're, all, I mean, and, and Steve is a very accomplished songwriter and he's seen the top of the mountain and the bottom of the mountain and pain and pathos. I want to say one more thing before we get into your story, which is another person who's at the Park City Song Summit is Ramblin' Jack Elliott. And Ramblin' Jack Elliott is, I think, 92 years old. 92. He, uh, he came up with Woody Guthrie. He didn't teach Bob Dylan how to play guitar, even though Steve keeps telling him that he did. It's a nice myth. And Steve, <laughs> Steve said to Rambling Jack Elliott, I love you. And, and I, I was feeling, I was thinking. I meant it. I was thinking it when you said it. I fucking love this guy. He reminds me of my great grandfather. Uh, he's a little Jewish guy from from Brooklyn. Yeah, what's his name? Elliot uh, Rabinovitz or Rabinovitz something. I don't. Or something. I don't know. I don't want to get his name wrong. But Asnapur. Like so I don't. I don't remember what it was. Is that what it is? No, I don't know. But uh, I interviewed him in uh, 1999 when I was still high because his daughter made a movie about him called The Ballad I of Rambling Jack. I love that movie. You know that movie. Oh, so yeah. beautiful. His San Francisco Bay Blues. His fucking Carpenter and a Lady. He's just, if I were a carpenter and you were a lady, so beautiful. His version, though, is so psychedelic mm-hmm. with that drone, that yeah. crazy drone on the front. It's not like Tim Harden's. It's like no. way better. It hits so hard. But Tim Harden made him a lot of money. Did He wrote, Ramblin' Jack wrote it? I thought Tim Harden wrote it. Oh, I thought Ramblin' wrote no, it. No, I think Tim Harden wrote it. Should we find out or should we just let it be? I gotta well, find out. I gotta find out. I don't think, see, I think one of the problems with Ramblin' Jack, and I do love him anyway, is I don't think he wrote a lot of them. I think, I he, think he says a, he only wrote two songs. He said that yesterday. Well, hold on. If I were a carpenter. Didn't Odetta's mom name him Ramblin' Jack? I don't know. Yeah, he came over to the house with Odetta, and she said- Yeah, it's, Tim Harden wrote it. Oh, okay. And she said, he just rambles on. He's Ramblin' Jack. And that's how he got the name. Yeah. Oh, I mean, how cool is that? Listen, it's interesting, though, because like when you connect the myths, right, and you connect- Dylan to Ramblin' Jack and Woody Guthrie and Arlo Guthrie and Allen Ginsberg and punk rock and you know it's a it's a it's a stream right that flows together and and somehow it connects to now but somehow when we think about things like Odetta and Ramblin' Jack it feels better <laughs> it does that, right no it really does it's like more special more it pure this, it has this certain patina to it right purity yeah. But let's talk about you. I want to talk about you. I saw Steve do a, a lab today. It was awesome. He's you're totally out there. And uh, <laughs> and it was like, he, he by the end of it, he was talking about a great, you were talking about a Grateful Dead show and you're spinning. And then he, you got up and spun. And you also said you hurt yourself, hurting yourself on stage. What do you do to hurt yourself on stage? Well, so many different things have happened. When I was in the rug burns, I remember one night I was really drunk and 
We were signed to the record label that Zappa had owned called Bizarre Planet Records. Uh And so the label people were there and I wanted to do a good show. And I was drinking a lot of whiskey. And I ran out and there was a low beam, a wooden beam. Oh, no. You know, like a 12 by 8 or something with sharp edges. And my head bashed as I ran onto the stage. Now, the band, I used to always act like I was hitting my head on things on stage and they would always laugh. Like shtick. Yeah, like shtick. And I would dive into the drum set and always do stuff like I was hurt and go, ah. And I came running out. My head was split open. I had my hands on my head and I fell on the ground. And they just kept playing. And then when I pulled my hands away, there was blood everywhere. And they go, I remember hearing um, our bass player go, dude, this is the best one yet. Where'd you get the blood? Right, right, right. And then I was just like knocked out. And they went, oh, my God. And that stopped. And I was rushed to the hospital. And I had to get 56 stitches in my skull. And we were slated to open the next night for the band X. Sure. And John friends Doe. of mine, John Doe. And I had done a tour with John and stuff. And the Rugburns were going to open for X. And the guy goes, you can't play for uh, two weeks, you have a bad concussion. And I was like, screw that. And so we went out the next night and my head, I looked like a Vulcan on Star Trek and I had all these stitches. And I think if you Google Steve Pult's mommy, I'm not sorry. A, not you a, you think a Vulcan t-shirt. or one of the Ferengi? No, what's the, with the evil race? The big forehead What's people? the race? The race. Yeah. Uh, oh God, I wish I could think of the name of well, the Well, I race. was one of those guys. And I came out, and I remember we were playing at, you know, House of Blues in L.A.? Sure. And it was packed, and there was all these ex-fans there, and, man, nobody wanted to mess with me because I had these stitches in my head, and I looked mean. (laughs) It was the one time in my life I looked mean. My eyes were all blackened and everything. and So, yeah, I I was constantly getting... Klingon. Klingon, yeah. I was constantly getting hurt on stage. Now, I I want you to do me a big favor. Yeah. And I, I, I knew we were going to have a problem. I, I, I dread, I, I'm a neurotic person. And um, you told some really good stories. And I've done enough recordings to know yeah. that sometimes, naturally, we don't want to tell the stories we just told. And you're going to think you told the story on the show when, in, when these listeners didn't hear you today. So I need you to pretend that today didn't happen. Wipe it from the memory banks. Tabula Rasa. Tabula Rasa. And um, you grew up in Southern California. What did you start doing first, music or drugs? That's my favorite musician question. I started doing music before drugs. I We moved from Canada, from Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm a dual citizen. And my guitar teacher came over to the house, and he had a glass eye and a wooden leg and started teaching me guitar. So I started guitar before drugs. And then when I became an altar boy, in the Catholic Church, that was when I started drinking the altar wine. And that was the first time. It's a classic alcoholic story. I would loved it. You know, I called it backstage. And I would drink that altar wine and be buzzed and be out there. And it, I, it felt so good. And you were already playing guitar at that point? Oh, yeah. I started playing when I was six. And you're a pretty decent guitar player. He's a, you're a good guitar player. Thank you. I like He's a really, really good finger picker. When do you think... Do you think you were drinking alcoholically the second you were drinking your, your, the, the wine? I always drank to get wasted. I remember I would go to the drive-in with my friends, you know, when the drive-in was a thing in the 70s. And we would get these Coors Buzz Bombs, you know, those quarts. And then we would get Old English 800, too. And we would drink them. And I was the one guy who would stand up and throw it in the air. And it would smash down on everybody's bare feet. And they'd be like, why did you do that? 
And I was like, why not? And I right. wanted to break everybody's bottles. And then I'd be vomiting. Yeah, I drank alcoholically from the first time I could drink. And when did you start, uh, when did music hit, really? I always played music since I was six. And music didn't take off for me till I was in college. That was when it took off, when I started playing a lot. I mean, I think that's such an exciting thing because, like, I, I was a musician, total, like, you know, amateur musician. And, and one of the weird regrets, I mean, I played professionally too, but it didn't feel professional. One of the major regrets I have is that I didn't really go for it. When did you go for it, go for it? Man, I, I was scared to go for it. I thought, I thought it was some magic thing and it was this velvet rope mentality where somebody's holding this rope out and they deem you worthy. And so when I learned to go for it, what happened was I had an aunt who was just like really bitchy to me all the time. And I, you know, I don't even like to talk bad about her because she's dead and I have this Catholic guilt. Nice. But she, I, she would always say to me, you can't play guitar and you can't live on the beach. And so what did I do? I moved straight to the beach and started playing guitar. I was in college and I didn't know that I could actually do this for a living. So when I got out of college, I was playing at nights in bars, you know, a lot of cover songs and writing my own songs. And then I read this book called The Razor's Edge by William Somerset Mom. Beautiful book. And it sort of changed my life. There's been movies made on this book. And I wanted to go to Europe. And I told my boss, so I went to get this job. I'm in my senior year of college. And I live next to these two girls, Kiara and Elizabeth. Okay beautiful blonde girls living in Mission Beach in San Diego. And I would hang out with them all the time. And I had a job interview the next morning at a plastics company. And my parents had told me, when you graduate, you can't move back home. You need to get a job. You can't go to Europe. This is what you have to do. Did you want to go to Europe? Big time. And all my friends were going and they wouldn't give me the money to go. I remember I was going to be going on this job interview and it was one in the morning and I'd come out of a bar and I was buzzed and Kiara and Elizabeth stuck their heads out of the window of their kitchen. They go, hey, you want to eat some mushrooms? And I said, I've never eaten mushrooms. And they said, come on. I go, well, I got a job interview at 8 a.m. They said, you'll be fine. <laughs> and I ate so many mushrooms right. and then I ate more. And I've never forgotten this. When the mushrooms kicked in, I opened, I always used to drink Coors. I loved the banquet beer cans, the yellow cans, not Coors, light. I was very picky. And I opened that beer and I remember the shrimps kicked in, and for some reason, I poured it all on my crotch. And it felt so good going down to my balls, to my asshole, on my cock. Like, I liked the feeling of the beer there. So I stripped off my clothes, and I said, let's all get in the bathtub. And we got, like, 12 eggs, and we were smashing each other's faces, writing on the walls. Wow. And this shit was going on. It was 7 in the morning, and my roommate woke up because he was driving me to the job interview. So he goes, you got to get to the job interview. And I had this thrift store suit I'd bought, a pinstripe suit. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You're naked in the tub. Were they naked? Yeah. And everyone's smearing food? Yeah, we we weren't having sex because we were shrooming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's some crazy, like- Oh, dude- I'm telling tactile them, delight. I'm telling them to shave stripes up the sides of my legs. I get out a razor and I put toothpaste on my legs. I'm having them shave stripes using the toothpaste as shaving cream. And then I have him break eggs on my face. We're just out of our minds. I'm frying so heavily. We eat more <laughs> shrooms. 
my roommate goes, you got to go to this job interview. So I get out of the bathtub. I got egg all over me. I'm trying yeah. to wash it out. I have sh stripes shaved up my legs and everything. And I put on this suit, this pinstripe suit. I duct tape it up so it's short enough. And they drop me off. And the girls are waiting in the car with my roommate in the parking lot of a plastics company in El Cajon, California. And I go inside. And the guy, his name's Tom Plain. He brings me up to his office. And I'm frying. Dude, the shrooms are peaking because I'd eaten more. And he goes, Tell me why I should hire you. And I'm telling you, I became Stephen Covey, the seven habits of highly effective people. I can tune into shit with right, my brain. Right, right. My brain's crazy when I want it to tune in. And I dialed in and I said, let me tell you something about sales, Tom. May I call you Tom? And he was like, yes. I go, the key to sales is follow-up. He goes, what do you mean? I go, I don't want to just push the product on the people. I want to become their friend and I want to come back. I want to make multiple trips. I want them to trust me. And then I lower the boom. I know you make a plastic product <laughs> called Slip Fix that repairs PVC pipes. I, I want this job. How did you know this? Because I read about it. Yeah. I want this job because I like the movie The Graduate. And he starts laughing now. He goes, plastics. I go, plastics, the Dustin Hoffman line, right? And he goes, are you trying to seduce me, Mrs. Robinson? We're laughing. I go, listen, Tom, what I want to do, I want to take your product, Slip Fix. I don't even know where this was coming from. I said, I want to get a flatbed truck and I want to put a barbecue in the back of it. He goes, you do? Why? And I go, because I want to go to where the construction workers are coming and I want to cook them hot dogs and I'm going to call it Slip Fixing Dogs. And he looks at me and goes, that's brilliant. And then he goes, where have you been? I've been interviewing people from all these great schools, UCLA, Stanford. Nobody talks like you. And by now I'm frying. So it's 1985. He takes out a piece of paper and on the piece of paper, he writes down what is the salary. I don't know what he's writing down. He writes down 17.5. Right. This is back in 1985. Yeah, yeah. 17.5. And he slides it across the table to me. I don't know what game we're playing. So I cross it out and I write 15. And, I back to him. and he goes, 15? Why don't you want less money than, it's like than it's 17 it's like and a half? Like and then I look at him and I go, and I knew right away I'd screwed up, right. but I'm really good at landing on my feet. And instead I go, because I want to get less. And he goes, why do you want to get less? And I go, because I want a back end. Because I know I'm going to sell and I'm confident in my skills. Wow. Also, I want a company car. And he goes, man, you're not afraid to ask for things. I go, of course I'm not. You think I'm going to be in sales and not want to do this? Have you, ever sold, so have, you ever, have you ever sold anything at that point? No, but those shrooms, I became like Tony Robbins. So what happened? So he hires me and he goes, here's the keys of the car. And I go, can I just pick it up on Monday? Because I'm frying you so can't drive. No. I go, because we're going out to breakfast. So I get back in the car. This, I is, get the the job. this is like my favorite story Dude, I've ever heard. I get back in the car. I go back to breakfast uh -huh. with Kiara and Elizabeth. Yeah. And then I show up at work and I have this job. <laughs> and I do it for three years. No way. From 1985 to 1988. And the whole time I'm in there, it's like Ferris Bueller's Day Off where the clock's going backwards yeah, and that yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. it was so boring. Right. So I read this book called The Razor's Edge. And I go, I got to get out of here. I got to go to Europe. I want to play guitar on the streets. And so I go, I'm going to ask him for a little time off. During that three years of being a plastic salesperson. I'm playing guitar at night. How are the sales going? They were going great. Like I was doing pretty well. I was going out and I was selling this stuff and I was doing okay. Were you drinking alcoholically? Oh, yeah. With all the customers, I was taking them out and getting wasted. Right. Classic salesman. Class I, like, I was paid to get wasted. And I mean. What did you look like? Were you like a hippie? 
No, I did not have long hair. I had shorter hair, and I would just dress kind Steve of Steve right now, just if you, I'm going to have a picture of him, but he's he's a very dapper, thin, cowboy-type, hippie type. He's got the suede jacket. Where do you get a suede jacket like that? <laughs> it's like all these people here have these cool clothes. I'm like an idiot. <laughs> it's like, I don't understand Dude, it. Dude, no way you have a Katz's hoodie on. Dude, Katz's I, is my no, favorite place. But it's just like everyone here has these cool Americana clothes. Where do you get them? <laughs> I just travel a lot, and when I see things, you're like, I want that. Yeah, like look at Lucas Nelson. Yeah, he fucking is dialed in his look. Now hold on, now you're a very dapper cowboy, psychedelic hippie type. What did you look like when you're dealing plastics? Um, shorter hair, and I would wear like khakis or something and a button-down shirt. What were you listening to? Um, at the time. I was because I was playing at nights. I was re- I've always been a Dylanologist, so I was really into Bob Dylan, heavy into everything by Bob Dylan. And I was really into Randy Newman, and I was really into Loudon Wainwright the Third. I I never tired of Joni Mitchell, and I had this nonstop diet of Tom Waits, Bob Dylan, just singer songwriter, straight singer songwriter, straight singer songwriter stuff. And that's all I would listen to. And you'd go out and play singer-songwriter stuff. I would go out and I would learn all these songs. I would learn covers. And then I'd... uh, Huey Lewis had this line. The great Huey Lewis. He did an interview with um, Rolling Stone magazine. They said, how did you make it? And I've never forgotten this. Huey Lewis is one of my teachers for what he said. He doesn't know this. I've never met the man. I don't... I only know two of his songs. Like if I heard him on the radio. What songs of his can you name? Okay. Um, My favorite one is from American Psycho where he goes, it's hip to be square. Yeah, and he's yeah. slicing that guy up. And he goes, this was where he started changing, where he did sports. Now, remember when he's yeah, killing that guy? Yeah. But So what Huey Lewis said was, he said, so we used to play at a place in Mill Valley and we were a cover band. We would play cover songs. But every once in a while, we'd slip in an original. And when we slipped in the original, a lot of times we'd do it before the break. We'd be on the break and I'd know if the song was good if somebody said, hey man, you guys are great, but what was that last song you did? That was my favorite. And he'd go, Oh, we wrote that. And he goes, we called it infiltrate, then double cross. So we'd infiltrate, get them to like them. Where did you hear Louis Louis, Louis say that? I read it in a Rolling Stone interview, and I've never forgotten it. I love Huey Lewis. Dude, I do too. There's a thing about, first of all, he's a sick harmonica player. Yeah. And secondly, did you know he worked for an original yogurt company that sold yogurt to the Grateful Dead family house? And he used to just deliver yogurt in, in, in San Francisco. Whoa. He was like some old school fucking yogurt dealing hippie. And then and he, he has a huge cock. I heard it's really thick. Like, do you remember that movie? He shows it in it. What does he, where does he I show I thought it was cock? Grand Canyon, Lawrence Kasdan film. He shows his cock in Grand Canyon? Yeah, there's a scene and everybody was like, holy shit. I love Huey Lewis. Yeah, that's cool, man. I didn't see his cock. But isn't that cool advice? Infiltrate, then double cross? And honestly, David, Sir David, may I call you David? Sure. Okay. What I, else are you going to call I me? I took it, Dave. You can I don't me. know what you prefer. I don't care. Dave is I, great. I took it to heart, and I really believed that. So when I was playing in bars, I started infiltrating and double crossing. What were the What were the covers you were playing? Or you just played everything? I would play really cool covers, like songs by Loudon Wainwright, songs by Towns Van Zandt. Um, Stevie Wonder, we'd throw in the theme song to Sesame Street. Nice. We would get really, and then I started writing songs. I never forgot, I wrote a song called Single Life, and it scared me when I wrote it, because it was like the first time I really wrote a song that I believed in, and it was brutal. So it opened up and it went, 
There's a cold piece of pizza in the fridge if you want it. A stale glass of beer on the table by the Playboys. Did you see Miss March? God, she looks so young. This single life is sure is fun. <laughs> and it goes on and on of all this sort of behavior. We'll snort some cocaine in the bar by the condom dispenser. Talk about the barmaid. I hear she'll take her pants off if you drive a Camaro. Life just seems better. This single life. It's like sort of a very depressing song. And when I wrote it, I went, ouch, this hurts. And I wrote it and I said, this is a songwriting that I'm never going to play for anybody. It's too honest. And then, of course, I always challenge myself if I'm scared to play a song live. And I sang it that night at Kelly's Pub. And I, at the break, so many people came up and go, single life, what's that song? Who wrote that? And I go, I did. I was kind of shy, like I was going to get yelled at. Dude, that's a great fucking song they were saying. And that's what I needed. Everybody needs a little booster shot. Listeners that are listening right now, in anything they're doing in life, we get little booster shots. I'm not talking like they have to be a songwriter. Anything we're doing, we need booster shots. And when I learned that, I try to be a booster shot giver to people. Me too. Because when I see people and I'm out somewhere, I don't want to talk to the winner. I want to talk to the person that's nobody's talking to at a bar. To spread the love. Yeah, of course. And I want to make them feel good and I want to look them in the eye. And I don't want it just to be some stupid conversation. Like when I'm alone and I'm on the road and I go into a Waffle House at two in the morning, I really want to talk to the cook or somebody that's doing something and ask them, hey, what's your favorite movie? Questions that people just don't get asked because they're working there. They get ignored. There's a great swath of people in the world that are the ignored ones. It's also just like all the stupid conversations. You want to look for a conversation that isn't stupid. I mean, and that's kind of like one of the challenges of a thing like this. There's all these conversations. How do you get to the good ones? But what kind of drugs are you doing at that point? So at that point, when I was playing, I started playing at Kelly's Pub. And we would go into Kelly's Pub. And my whole goal was... I'm, I don't want to play at the normal bar where everybody's playing, the indie rock bar or this bar. I want to make, I love home cooking. I want to find a bar and turn it into the place. I love a challenge. I want to plant my flag in Kelly's Pub. But you had a vision, right? Oh, yeah. That you, it was going to be your place. It was going to be my place, the rug burns. So we start going Hold on, in when there. does the rug burn start and how big did the rug burns get? I've never been big. Let's just, like, right away I can tell you this. I have never <laughs> been big. I'm on a slow rise to the middle, right. and I'm fine with it. Right. I love it. I think I'm, I am too. And going. I love it. I don't want to be big. I've been around big, and I don't need that. I love my life. We'll get to that, but, too. Um, so so, the, so rug- the rug burns are playing, and we're packing this place. And everybody's smoking in the bar back then. You could smoke. And I'm my biggest influence was this band, The Beat Farmers. They were a San Diego band legendary Americana, so good, drunk. And so I'm playing in Kelly's Pub. And that's when I really, really got a taste for cocaine. Like, well, I first got the taste for cocaine in 1979, maybe 1980. I got a job at Round Table Pizza prior to the Rugburns getting together. And I got this job and I went and applied at Roundtable Pizza and the guy comes out to me, he goes, how quick can you drink a beer? This is my job interview. 
And I say, pretty quick. He goes, go into the walk and I have a pint in there. I'm going to time you. So I drink the beer. <laughs> and then he goes, can you drink two more? Yeah. He goes, you got the job. So then he says to me, you have a nice voice. I like your voice. You sort of sound like Michael Douglas. He goes, I want you to be the guy that lets people know when their pizzas are ready. So that's when I first really learned to use a microphone was at Roundtable Pizza. And I'd go, isn't it weird that he wanted to see how fast you could drink three beers? Yeah, because he wanted a drinking buddy. And I was 19 and he gave me his ID and he went and got another one so I could go to bars with him. And this was the manager of Roundtable. When I got my first job in, in television production, the guy interviews me, he sits me down and he goes, I know you think you've done a lot of drugs, but I've done more. And it's like, why would anyone do either of those things when they're hiring somebody? I guess these people were young and they wanted to have fun. But man, I bombed out of that job. Did you bomb out at Roundtable Pizza? Well, so what happened was I'm drinking beers and I'm letting people know I'm like, Jameson, you have a large Hawaiian pizza. Come on up and get it. And I do have a little Michael Douglas. I'm really getting into it. So this song had just come out on the radio, and the song was called The Rodeo Song. It was by these Canadians. You might have heard it. They bleep out all the F words. So the song went, well, it's 40 below, and I don't give a fuck out of heater in my truck, and I'm off to the rodeo. Well, it's an elemental left and an elemental right. Come on, you fucking don't make it your right step right and get off the stage. You goddamn dude, you know, you pissed me off. You fucking jerk. You get on my nerves. Yeah. Well, here comes Johnny with his pecker in his hand. He's a one ball man and he's up to the rodeo. It's this song. So the owner of Round Table Pizza comes in that night. And the night before, the manager said, have you ever done cocaine? And I said, no, but I want to. And he said, we're going to have a cocaine party. Come over to my house. Oh, boy. So he lived in Tierra Santa, which is a suburb of San Diego. And I go to his house and all the Round Table employees are there. Tom Petty had just come out with this record and it was called Damn the Torpedoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He puts the needle on the vinyl. He says, don't snort the line until Tom Petty kicks him to the chorus. And I go, I don't know when the chorus is. I've never heard the song yet. It had just come out. He cuts up a line of cocaine. I'll never forget the way it looked. It was glistening. It looked like glass. It was beautiful with the light shining down. <laughs> Everybody else had snorted theirs. He says, you can't snort your line until Tom Petty gets a chorus. So I hear, we get something. We both know it. Oh, we don't talk too much about it. <laughs> Ain't no, and I'm like, is this a chorus? No. Ain't no real big secret. Somehow, somehow, we get around. Hey, it don't really matter. Is this a chorus? No. Everybody got to fight to be free. See? You don't have to live. And he goes, now. And I remember I put that dirty dollar bill down that had been in everybody's nose with nose hair and a little bit of nasal blood on it. And I snorted that line of coke and I felt it drip down my throat. And that was the first line. And I remember I listened to that song. And earlier I'd said, I don't have any money for this. I've got to buy my books on Monday. So I'll just try coke. And I did that line. And the next thing I did, about five minutes later, I go, we got to get more. Fuck school. Let's go to my ATM. And I emptied that sucker out and we bought more. I was instantly into it. Can I just say something, please? Yes. Fucking, I didn't like Coke, right? I did yeah. a ton of Coke. I didn't like it. I've never wanted to do Coke until this moment. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I haven't ever craved Coke. I, I mean, like, that story is so Coke. I can taste it. You know what yes. I'm saying? I can see the glisten. I can taste it. You can it. feel the drip down your yeah, throat. Yeah, yeah, And I, I, li I liked it maybe, if you added up all the times I did Coke, I probably liked an hour of many, 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 many hours. 
But like that story really, it really is the nadir of cocaine use. So, okay. So you fall in love with Coke, you empty the bank account. Oh, dude, I loved it. So how do you man? So like, but you're not, you're not slipping in over the edge yet. Not yet. So the next night I go into round table pizza and I sing the rodeo song. Cause the guy goes, I left you three beers. I want to time you. Cause you're the quickest chugger I've ever seen. Chugged him. He goes, you set a record. And then I go onto the mic. The owner of round table pizza is there. And I have to let him know his pizza's ready. His name's Mr. McDonald. And I don't know it's the owner. I get on the mic and I go, Mr. McDonald, your pizzas are ready. And he's there with all his born-again Christian friends that had come out from Iowa to San Diego. And then I go, but be first, I got a song for you before you get up here. Oh, no. And then I go onto the mic and I go, well, it's 40 below and I don't give a fuck out of heater in my truck and I'm and the whole Pizza parlor's clapping Rockin'. except this one table. Except Michael. M- Mr. McDonald. Michael McDonald. Yeah. And the guy comes up, and then the manager goes, you got to go home now. You got to get out of here. So he sends me home, and I I think I drove home, you know, and I go home. The next morning, I'm unceremoniously woken up at 7 a.m. with a phone call. Mm. I answer the phone. I go, hello? He goes, is Steve Poltz there? Yeah, this is Steve. This is Mr. McDonald, Roundtable Pizza. You need to come in and pick up your check. And I go, we're getting paid early. (laughs) And he goes, no, you're fired. We need pizza makers, not entertainers. And at that moment, my heart swelled with pride because he called me an entertainer. Right. And I went, I'm an entertainer? And I said, "Can can I cash my check there? And he goes, yes. And I cashed it. I stuck my thumb out and hitchhiked up to Northern California. And just kept drinking and partying. Can I tell you, you are a masterful storyteller. You, <laughs> Thank re- you. you really are a masterful storyteller. I, I have to tell you, it's <laughs> so good. Such a great story. So you go up to Northern California. Yeah. And you're like, you're it. You can play guitar, you can entertain, you're out on the edge. And, and and where do you go? So in I get a taste. Cali? I get a taste of playing in Northern California. I just played on the streets. Played with some people busking. that had to play busking. But the rug rug burns are happening. Not the happening. rug burns uh, hadn't happened yet. Oh, okay. Pre rug burns. And so then I go to University of San Diego, which is a Catholic university, really uh, expensive, beautiful school. I get a scholarship to go there because I had good grades. I transferred in nice. as a junior, and. Then I fall in love with this girl from Alaska named Lynn Hajdukovic. I play, I graduate from college, get the job, eat the mushrooms, work for this guy, Tom Plain, get drunk, get paid to get drunk. And then I'm able to find Coke every once in a while, you know, and I'm able to do Coke. I'm having a great time. The rug burns have started. We're starting to happen. Was it your vision for the rug burns? My vision. And you're like, I need a band. I'm an entertainer. We were a duo. With the Rugburn started as a duo, just a folk duo, almost like the Smothers Brothers. Okay. Kind of funny. Two guitars. Yeah, two guitars. And so we're playing. And then every week I'm like, holy shit, I can do whatever I want. We're making our own cassettes. So I go in, I find this Irish guy. And I, I say, hey, I want to play in your bar because I want to make this bar my own. And it's just old alcoholics. Hang, imagine a dingy Irish pub where old alcoholics don't want anything to do with you and there's a stage and then what happened was i started learning on the microphone to say the audience anybody got any drugs give them to me and we're taking a break and everybody wants to be your friend and give you drugs when you're the guy or girl on stage if you have the power of the microphone to say anybody got any drugs and you're singing people start showing up with cocaine people start showing up with fishing tackle boxes cocaine 
pills because I love doing Coke with a little bit of Xanax. Yeah. You know, I liked that combo. Oh, yeah, it's great. And Guinness and then shots of Jameson. And then I would vomit in the middle of the show because I was a big vomiter. Yeah. I would take the mic outside. I goes, you guys want to hear me vomit? And they'd be like, yeah. And I'd have a long 30-foot mic cord. I'd go outside, throw up where they could see me on the window, and I'd puke on the ground. And they'd go, yeah. And I'd come in, and the bartender would give me another pitcher of Guinness. I'd chug it. I'd throw it at the audience. I'd rip the curtains down, and I'd wear them on my head and pour Guinness on them. They had those big mirrors that said Jameson Irish Whiskey. I'd ram the mic stand through them and break the mirrors each week. I destroyed the bar. And I'd come in on Saturdays to get my equipment after destroying it on a Friday night. And Nick would go, well, Steve, <laughs> you're supposed to make $300. What you did two hundred and eighty-seven dollars, so I've only got thirteen bucks to give you. If you wouldn't destroy the place, you'd make a little money. But I gotta pay for the damages you're doing. I love you, but you're bringing in a great crowd. But try not to destroy the place. And I'd say I'd be all sheepish. I'm so sorry, Nick, because I was always, I wasn't a mean drunk. You were just totally blacked out. Yeah, and I loved, I loved the sound of breaking glass, and I loved, like, I used to get my for my birthday, I would request a hundred empty bottles that I could throw in the apartment I lived in. There was glass everywhere. That's scary. I know. And I love destroying glass, windows, anything, because the sound of glass breaking is like, ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. There's also just, you had power. You could do whatever you wanted. Yeah. You had the audience in your hands. Free drugs. Smashing everything. Free drugs all the time. Yeah, you were you were out of your mind. But it's, it sounds like, Pretty pretty epic. And then the Rock Burns takes off a little bit and you start touring, right? So we end up getting a song played on 91X, the main station. We get a record deal. Guy what town was that that place in? Kelly's Pub. San Diego. Okay. So I'm a total SoCal guy. So we end up getting a record deal because a guy that was in the Beat Farmers then worked for Bizarre Planet Records. Hooked it up. Zappa's old label and manager, Herb Cohen, gives me a record deal and they used to they signed tom waits alice cooper lord buckley yeah, yeah, um yeah. wild man fisher wild man fisher did our epk our electronic press kit and wild man fisher used to open for zappa he'd be the guy going my name is larry yeah. i have a sister hello larry what's your sister's name and we go around san diego with a video cam and go who do you think's a better songwriter steve pultz or wild man fisher and it was crazy Everything was happening for us. We get this record deal. The radio starts playing us. We play with Green Day. And then we get asked to play with the Ramones. We're playing in uh, all across the country, you know, from we'd always play in Tijuana because 16 year old kids could come across the border 25 minutes and we'd play at this place called Mr. Crowns. And it was insane. Were you just getting crazy drugs in Tijuana? Oh, dude. Because I, I would always go over there because I could buy Valium. Yeah. And then I, I remember one time I woke up underneath an elephant and they set up circus up around me, like one of those shitty little circuses. They couldn't wake me up. And I was on the ground. I remember I opened my eyes and my face was on guitar strings. And I remember the, it was a G string pushed into my face. And I opened my eyes and I like, what the fuck is that? And it was an elephant. And they were like, Sorry, senor, we try to wake you. What do you mean an elephant? An elephant. Like a real a, elephant? For a circus. Yeah. Shut up. How does that I'm not happen? kidding you. And I'm in a tent, a circus tent, and they're setting up. We try to wake you. You don't even know how up. you got there. No. I know That's that the somehow. You blacked out on alcohol and benzene. And I was in my station wagon from AMS Plastics. The car, you the still company had car. How did you lose the job from the plastics place? So check this shit out. So I read this book, The Razor's Edge by William Somerset Mom. And I go in and I go, 
I'm going to tell this guy I need to take a vacation to go play guitar on the streets of Europe. So I tell my boss, I go in, I go. Were you tripping? No. And I was totally sober. I go, hey, Tom, I need to take a little time off. He goes, why? And I go, well, I read this book called The Razor's Edge, and I need to go visit Europe and play my guitar on the streets. He goes, what do you mean on the streets? For passing change? And I go, yeah. He goes, like a bum? And I go, yeah, exactly like a bum. And that was what the protagonist in the book says. He says, I want to bum around Europe. And it really affected me. And I said to myself, if I'm a 90-year-old man, I want to do the 90-year-old man litmus test. If I'm on my deathbed and I look back, I don't want to say, did I wuss out or did I follow my dream? So he says, how much time do you want off? I go, nine months. And I remember he spit out his iced tea. He's like, <laughs> nine months, nine months? And I go, yeah. And he goes, you know what? You are crazy. You were crazy from the day I hired you. And I'm going to give you nine months off. If you're a man of your word, you'll come back and work for me in nine months. I go, Tom, I promise you, I will come back in nine months and I will work for you. I shook his hand. And I went to Europe. I started playing on the streets for passing change. I got hired in a bar. They invited me inside. I hitchhiked around Ireland, got a job in Amsterdam, was eating space cakes, fell in love with an Israeli journalist who was living in Amsterdam. She was over from Israel covering stuff. And we ate space cakes and watched the movie Rattle and Hum by U2 in Amsterdam, tripping balls. And then I finally came back to the United States after nine months and I took my job back because I was a man of my word yeah. and I'm really stubborn when it comes to stuff like that. And if this guy hires me back and I worked for him for another two years and I said, I got to quit. And in 1992, I quit. And he what gave he me say? a bonus. He okay. gave me a bonus. He was really nice. He and just wanted you to follow your To dreams. this day, this guy is still my friend. He bought me my first PA, by the way. I didn't mention this when he hired me. And I paid him back 50 bucks a week. So by now, I'm on my way with the Rugburns. We're making cassettes. We get a record deal. We start traveling around the country. And I remember I'm looking at our bass player one night. And I go, I just looked at the calendar. We've been gone 88 days. And I've been drunk 88 days in a row. And I've done drugs whenever I could get them. And we would just say to people in the audience, we want to sleep at your house. We want to do all your drugs. We were so reckless. Our, the way we, we'd say it on stage, people would come to our house, right. party well, all they night. Wanted. They wa that's what they wanted. That's yeah. why they went to the show. It was like this uh, you know, post-punk thing, right? Totally. Replacements era, post-punk, Americana with, with Edge. And I met Jake from in New York from Rocks Off. You know Rocks Off, that I, whole thing, Jake Safranowski? I don't. He, he used I hate to, do, to not know stuff. He'd do these cruises that go around the Statue of Liberty <clears throat> okay. and get all these different artists, different punk rock bands and stuff. That's where I met Jake. And we used to play a place called the Wetlands. Sure, I used to live in the Wetlands. Dude, I love I loved that yeah, place. It was, that was the best club I ever went to. It was the best. We opened for Mo one night, right when they first got started. My band played Wetlands all the time. Dude. Like, I loved Wetlands. I interviewed Slash in Wetlands, high on heroin. He was high on heroin. I remember I used to- It was go right out of the tunnel, right? Soho? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was It was on the lower west side. It was the greatest fucking- Right when you came out of the- Yeah, from New Jersey. Yeah. It was the greatest club in the ever. world. But tell the story when you're opening for the Ramones. Oh, my God. So, we're playing around the country- and then we start getting radio play. For whatever reason, the people in Cleveland and Detroit loved the Rugburns. They loved us. Rust Belt, all those people in the Rust Belt area loved us because we were a hard-drinking, partying band. So we get asked. They start playing this song we have called Hitchhiker Joe. And it's played on uh, this station they have out there. 
in Cleveland. It was the big station, the buzzard. They do festivals and stuff. And so we get asked to open for the Ramones. And so we go there and we're in Cleveland and the promoter walks in. I've never forgotten this. I could still see this if they ever make a movie of my life. Yes. I'm in this shitty backstage area waiting to go on and open for the Ramones. And the promoter comes in. He goes, five minutes, five minutes. And he goes, listen, guys, can I talk to you real quick? Gather around. We all get around. We're looking at him. We're just like wide eyed does, you know, like that. And he goes, I want to apologize on behalf of all Ramones fans for what's about to happen to you out there. And I go, what do you mean? What do you mean? What's about to happen? He goes, the Ramones fans don't want to hear anybody at the Ramones, and you're going to get a lot of shit thrown at you, but just play through it. You're going to just be wary because shit's going to come flying at you. They don't want to see you. And I go, fuck. <laughs> so we walk out there, and my most innocent voice on the microphone, I go, Good evening, Cleveland. I've never forgotten how shaky my voice was. A little bit of feedback on the mic. Good evening, Cleveland. And you're seasoned at that point. Yeah. And I go, hey, we're the Rugburns, and we're from San Diego, California. Please give us a warm Cleveland welcome. Like, just stupidest fucking thing I could have said. Next thing I know, I look at this unidentified <laughs> flying object coming at me, and I'm like, what is that? Is that a lemon? <laughs> I think it's a lemon. It is a lemon. And I'm a deer in headlights. I can't move. Boom, it hits my acoustic guitar and it cracks it because we have an electric guitar, acoustic guitar, bass and drums. Cracks the body of it, puts a crack in it and the whole audience goes, oh, and I don't know what to do. I look down, the lemons split, my guitar split and our drummer, Stinky, comes running down. He's wearing a kilt and he has nothing on underneath the kilt and he lays down on the stage and just opens his leg out. His balls and cock are hanging out there. What made him do this? I don't know why he did this, but he saved me. And I pick up the lemon, I squeeze it on my face and then I squeeze it all on his cock and balls. Do you remember the thought process at that point? I just thought this would be a great place to squeeze a lemon on his cock and balls and squeeze it in my mouth like I just don't care. So I do it. Well, the Ramones fans seem to love this. Like they really, of course. really loved it. Yes. Next thing I know, we rock. <laughs> we get a standing ovation. We finish and Joey Ramone walks up and we had been told prior to that, once you're done, get your shit off stage and do not watch from side stage. The Ramones want nobody on side stage. And I go, okay. We finish the show and Joey Ramone walks up to me and he goes, you guys are pretty cool. You could stand side stage. <laughs> yeah. And it was like being anointed by the Pope. So we watched him was side he great? stage. Was it, was it just great to be in their presence? It was like, dude, I just sat there. I was, I, the one thing I learned was don't say anything. Right. When you're around somebody like that, just if he's saying you can stay here, right. don't be an idiot. Right. Just be like, thank I you. I need to learn that, that lesson. <laughs> so we said that and I watched him. Dude, that to me was the peak it was so beautiful to be able to be a part of that. Well, you were. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, and and then you go back to California. Yeah. So then we're on the road. And so then everything starts to get more and we, a little more pressure on us. And so we start drinking more. And so one night we're on the road. And all it is really is booze and Coke. And not that much Coke because it's too much money. You're too just, much dr- money. You're just drinking like a fucking drinking crazy like alcoholic. idiots. Right. As much as we could drink. And we're drinking every night and driving. I don't know why we didn't kill someone. You know, I, just, I feel bad even saying this on the mic that we drove. Sure. You know, but we drove. I'm sure a ton of the audience has, has shot. And I would pick up. Whatever. I, I used to pick up 
people, I would keep drinking and I'd pick up people at six in the morning because I knew they could get Coke. I'd see people strung out and I'd go, can you get some Coke? And I would end up in bars in Cincinnati with people that were just tweaked out of their heads, hanging out with people. And then the Rugburns, we'd have to leave at like noon to get to some other city like Detroit. And I'd show up, my eyes blazing because I was the only one using harder drugs. They right. just drank. And I would pull all these all-nighters. So then we're driving down the road, and Stinky got really drunk one night, and we were just about done with the tour. We had one more show left, and he threw a bottle at my head from the back of the van while I was driving. And he throws it, it hits me in the head, and I said, dude, what the fuck do you do that for? If you do that one more time, I'm pulling this van over, and I'm beating your ass. And I'm drunk driving. And next thing I know, a bottle hits me even harder in the head. I skid to a stop in the middle of the intersection. I open the side door of the van. I pull him out, and we start pummeling each other hard. Cops show Stinky up. Stinky who had saved you at the Ramon show. Yeah, we're beating the fuck out of each other. Full on. Cops show up. We both get arrested, pulled into the cop car. And the cop's like, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? Blah, blah, blah. He's yelling at us. Um, I'm bleeding. He's bleeding. And he goes, I don't have time to deal with this shit. I have a robbery call I got to get to. He takes the cuffs off. He goes, just get the fuck out of here. So we get back in the van and we go to the hotel. We're at a Motel 6. We're all sharing a room, some shitty room. And Sticky goes, I'm getting my own room. I'm calling my parents. They're giving me money to fly home. I quit. This is over. I was like, fuck you. Fuck you. And so he's getting ready to quit the band he's leaving and the next morning i go next door to the motel six there's a waffle house or some shit like that i go into the waffle house and my eyes all swollen my lips swollen and the waitress is like what happened to you and i'm like steve buscemi and fargo and i go you should see the other guy <laughs> and then about a half hour later stinky walks in and his eyes all swollen and his lips all swollen and he looks at me i look at him i go hey he gives me a hug that night we played a show he didn't leave he didn't leave and I will still say this on my deathbed. That night we played, we didn't drink. We were the fucking best band in the world. Right. I wouldn't have not ever wanted to follow us that night. And we're looking at each other. We looked badass. My lips swollen, my eyes <laughs> right, black, right, right. Stinky's eyes fucked up. Everybody's like, whoa. And then they fly home. So I drive old Route 66. I got all the money of the Rugburns, our slush fund. They forget to get it. I got four grand. I end up in Las Vegas oh, God. and I'm in Vegas with this money and I'm at the Hard Rock Cafe and I start drinking and there's a sign outside the bar, the joint, and it's a sign and it says Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros sold out. And I was a huge Clash fan. So I'm like, fuck, I got to get into that show. So I'm, I go, I got four grand. So I start gambling with the Rugburn's money. I'm drinking double Jack Daniels on the rock. I think I scored some Coke, you know, because it's Vegas. I, was, I got really good at scoring Coke from sound men. So I'm playing blackjack, and I look up, and it's Joe Strummer walking by. So I'm fucked up enough where I go, hey, Joe, and I got a black eye. And he goes, what happened to you? And I go, oh, I got in a fist fight with our drummer. And Joe Strummer loved it. And he starts laughing. He goes, ha. He goes, I've done that before. And then he goes, I've never played blackjack. I go, sit down. I got all the band's money. Let me play some bets for you. So I give him 400 bucks worth of oh chips. Oh, my God. I start betting for Joe Strummer to teach him how to play blackjack. He ends up doubling his money. You know, sometimes beginner's yeah, luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're playing for like an hour. Finally, his tour manager comes up. He goes, Joe, <laughs> you got to play the show. So Joe gives me my original 400 back, keeps his 400 profit. And then he goes, you coming to the show? I go, no, it's sold out. He goes, come with me. So I go, okay. So he brings me backstage with this guy. And then he... 
they, they bring me to the front where everybody's going to be, where the mosh pit's going to yeah, break yeah, out. Yeah, he yeah. drops me down in the front. Not Joe, but the bouncer. Joe's getting ready to go on. He comes out, he's playing. And in the middle of the show, a guy jumps up and he steps on the microphone. Like he jumps up to sing with Joe Strummer, some punter out of the crowd. And he hits the microphone stand on the bottom and it bashes Joe in the lip, cuts his lip open. I've never seen anything. This is the coolest shit I've ever seen on stage. Joe Strummer steps back fucking clocks the guy in the face, <laughs> drops him off the stage. The guy falls, and then he stops the song and goes, Otto Mon, if the cunt <laughs> wants to sing along, but don't bust me fucking lip. And then he fucking breaks into like London calling right, or right. Cadillac or Incredible. some old Clash song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was one of the greatest moments. Came back to San Diego and continued my drug use like high from the Ramones and high What from happened Joe with the Strummer. band's money? And that's another, like, that's an epic tale. Oh, it was Joe's crazy. Blackjack with Joe Strummer, and he beats a dude down in the show. Dude, it was-, it was nuts. So then I come back. I saved enough of the money where they got paid, and everybody was cool. And then we just kept touring. But eventually, it just, you know, things go their course. Sure. And uh, so then I had met a girl named Julie. Hold on. Hold on. How did the, the rug burns end, though? Was so- it end with a whimper or to end with, like, some horrible thing? It ended with a whimper. Dude, it ended with people just going their separate ways. The guitarist quit to become a teacher. Uh, bass player quit to go solo. And then we were a trio. And we were a cool trio. You, Stinky, and who else? And John Castro, a guy from New York. Okay. And he started playing bass. And we were really tight as a trio. I liked it. And then I met Jewel. And, and hold on, Dopey Nation. When he says he met Jewel, he's talking about the incredibly famous and successful singer-songwriter, pop star. I thought she was from Alaska. She is. Jewel. He meets that Jewel. So she moves and to- And she's San- very beautiful when you meet her. Oh, yeah. Gorgeous. And she moves to San Diego, and she's just like this angel. And she's working at a place called Java Joe's in Poway. And around that time, I started playing a lot of solo shows. And I, I as I was playing with the Rugburns, like people would show up, they'd be like- we had this song called Dick's Automotive and people would be going, Dick's Automotive. And I'd be like, I just wrote this really pretty love song. And I had gone to see a guy named Loudon Wainwright III at a place called McCabe's in Santa Monica. It's a famous guitar shop. Everybody's played there. And when I saw Loudon Wainwright- That's Rufus Wainwright's dad. Yeah. By the way, I, I toured with Rufus. I have good stories about him too. So I play. I watched Loudon Wainwright play and I was dating this girl named Anastasia. And so we go to see- Loudon Wainwright, and I had a light bulb moment where I went, that's my future. A solo guy on acoustic guitar telling stories. I went, I can do that. I can do what he's doing. I obviously different songs and a different style, but I could make a living. I saw my future. It was one of those moments. I understand. And you're still drinking crazy. Drinking like wild, out of fucking control. So then I meet this girl named Jewel. She's living in a Volkswagen van in the parking lot of Java Joe's. She had moved down from Alaska, and she's a barista at Java Joe's. Did she fall in love with you? Oh, yeah, we fell in love, yeah. What happened to Anastasia? Anastasia, that's a whole nother story I can get into. Is it bad? No, it's great. What happened? Oh, my God. So I meet this girl, Anastasia. I play a frat party in Mexico, and I meet her. And she's into- Wait, is it a fraternity, a Mexican fraternity? No, it was a fraternity, but all, they would always do their parties and drive across the border. Okay. So we go down to San Felipe, Mexico, and I, I meet this girl named Anastasia down there. So Anastasia 
is into like Phil Collins and like real pop stuff. And I turn her on to Loudon Wainwright and all the stuff I'm into, Randy Newman, Tom Waits. And then she had graduated from UCLA. And so she says, to, I get really drunk one night and I say to her, I, I go, she ends up getting a job in Chicago. We, we split up and she went to Chicago and became the booking agent at a club called Shuba's. Shuba's is on Southport in Belmont. It's a famous club in Chicago. Uh, really cool bar. She was the booking agent. And I meet her there because she had just moved to Chicago. And I said, listen, let's open up a Let's Go Europe book and I'll meet you anywhere in October. And I open the book and it's Mykonos. In Greece. Yeah. So we find the name of a bar. I go out to meet her in Mykonos. I fly all the way out with this friend of mine, Kevo. And Tom Petty had just come out with that song, Free Fallen. Sure. And we're staggering down the streets drinking ouzo. <clears throat> and this cop, had pulled me over when I was with the Rugburns. And I used to, on the back of our one of our records, I'm wearing a pink wedding dress. And it's a record called Mommy, I'm Sorry. And this cop was like, why are you wearing a dress? And he gives me some handcuffs. I think the cop was like... Into it. Into it. So he gave me his handcuffs. <clears throat> so I bring him out to meet Anastasia. And we get drunk. We're drinking all this ouzo. We're staggering down the streets of Greece. And I want to get Kevo really fucked up because I want to have sex with Anastasia because we're in the same room. Right. You know, we don't have money. You, to want, him to, you want him to pass out. I want him to pass out because I want to get busy with Anastasia. And she's brought all this lingerie. So we get Kevo. We're walking down the streets of Mykonos and we're singing, He's a good girl living in Reseda. Love freeways. And we're going free, free falling. And I'm chugging booze but only doing every other one i'm throwing the other ones over my shoulder so kevin thinks he's you're as drunk as him yeah we get back to the room and i'm thinking i want to get these handcuffs out and i want to handcuff her so she goes i'm going to change into this lingerie kevin's asleep we got these two just these twin beds this shitty hotel and so kevin's asleep anastasia goes into the bathroom to change there's a ceiling fan above so i take off all my clothes and i'm pretty drunk and i handcuff myself to the ceiling fan <laughs> And the ceiling fan's going, starts going and Why did you do to the ceiling fan? I don't know why, but I'm totally naked. I'm hanging from the ceiling fan, kind of spinning around real slow like an Egon Schiele painting because I'm all skinny and all elongated. And Anastasia comes out and she's got lingerie on, takes her top off and sees me. I mean, my dick's hanging out. I'm swinging around on a fan handcuffed to it. <laughs> it's to like a the Muppet ceiling movie. fan. Yes. And then she goes, you're a bad boy. And all of a sudden, Kevo sits up and he goes, living in Reseda. <laughs> and the whole time I thought he was asleep. And then he starts laughing. Sorry, he's joking. He goes, you guys are fucking crazy. And then he passes back out. That's oh, I incredible. couldn't believe it. So hold on though. Jewel at the coffee shop. So I go into this coffee shop. They're playing poker. And I meet this girl. She says, I'm Jewel. And she was just very genuine. And she is an Alaskan through and through. And I had been in love with a, a girl from Alaska named Lynn Hajdukovic in the early 80s when I was in college. And she was from Fairbanks. And I followed her back to Alaska. Okay. And she broke my heart. So you were like predetermined to be with another Alaskan? Maybe. Because when I met her and I knew she was Alaskan, I started talking to her. And dropping she, all the Alaskan shit, right? Yeah, just like naturally talking about things. Oh, I was over here. Where do you live? She's from Homer, which is a totally different area than Fairbanks. Fairbanks, they call square banks a lot of times, and it's colder. 
and we just clicked and she loved your band loved my band the rug burns it was predetermined because she was a fan of yours i probably yeah like we instantly it we we were instantly at ease a lot of times you meet people and if you in if you like their work be they a chef a graphic artist a podcaster anything in the arts like that you tend to already have connection a connection and it's almost like an equal footing thing you know, she said, I'm a musician, I'm, I write songs, I'd like to get a following like your band has. And so I said to her, what's your music like? And she played me some songs and I said, this is what I think you should do. Do you want to know what I think you should do? And she said, yes. I always like to ask people that because some people don't want unsolicited advice and I don't want to do it if they don't want it. I love unsolicited advice, by the way. So after this, I'd like some. Okay, good. I said, do you want to know what I think you should do? And she goes, yeah. I go... Don't, because she was talking about playing at Java Joe's and all these other places. I said, they're great because there's an established following, but you are very special and unique. If I were you, I would find a coffee house. And if you want, I'll drive you around all the coffee houses. And we need to find one that has no music and then make it your own and slowly develop. Because when I first met her, her songs were like these long 24 verse songs without a chorus and stuff. And we would sit down and we would have music lessons, we'd call it, like joking around. I go, this is, the, this is the Beatles. She didn't know the Beatles. Like she grew up on a homestead and we would talk about all these different songwriters. And it's not that she didn't know anything. She knew a lot, but she didn't know about like a lot of pop music and stuff. And so. you taught her about hooks and choruses and bridges and structure. I don't want to act like I taught her it because it sounds, I but I did show her what I knew in my limited range. I showed her stuff. Let yes. me ask you this. Yeah. Because you, you guys fell in love. Yes. You start playing music. How bad are you drinking in that period? I was drinking, but she didn't drink at all. And so if I'm with somebody that's not drinking at all, I tend to do better, do way better. <laughs> right. And then when I would go away from her, I would just get hammered drunk. So she didn't deal with your alcoholism too much. She didn't not like it. She didn't have to deal with it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, I didn't know this, that she was going to become so famous. I just really liked her. And we start writing all these songs together. I would come over. I'd write songs. I would spend the night there and she was like a feral cat who grew up sleeping outdoors in Alaska. So she moved her bed. She moved out of her place in her van and moved in with me for a while and moved into her own house that she got with her mom. And she would take her bed and bring it outside on the porch and sleep outside, which I thought, like I'm that. scared. Oh, you're scared of her? No, I was scared. I was like, she's like a feral cat or something. And she would go to thrift stores and buy like lederhosen and wear them one night at a show. The next night, the next week, something else weird. And she would do these long poems, ballsy stuff. And so, I mean, she, I didn't know she was this force of nature right. that was going to explode. And she was ready. Oh. So. She knew what she wanted, right? You know, I think she did. I think she did. She went to Interlochen Academy for high school and hitchhiked all around. She'd carry a knife in her boot. She slept in her van. This was not some fake manufactured thing about Jewel living in her van. She was the real deal. I'm, I'm listening. I'm and, with you. Uh, like she used to wake up and in the morning she'd say to me, she'd take her fingernails and run them down my chest and go, this is how I'd kill you and skin you because she would skin her own cattle and kill it wow and she'd go i'd cut you open here and i'd pull your skin off 
I'd hang it out to dry and I'd make a coat out of poultry skin and make little booties. And she wound up with some rodeo guy, didn't she? Yeah. So So it was real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was a badass. So you how were you just like, let's write songs together? Yeah, it was like our natural thing. We might go surfing together or we might write a song, but we loved writing songs together. And it was a really natural thing to write songs together. I wasn't looking for some hit song or anything. I just really enjoyed the process. If I got together with somebody, I'd say, hey, let's make up a song. Did your songwriting change with her? Yes, it did. And a lot of people might say like, oh man, you wrote that hit. No way, man. Jewel has like the most natural pop instincts and she's not afraid to go full out. Like I suffered too much from Indiaism. Indiaism and irony and wanting it Weirdoism. To be, yeah, needing it to be outside the box right, and it right, couldn't right. be pop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was unabashed going she, for it. She she knew she could be it. And you don't think you could be it. Yes. So you need to always undo your good work. Yeah. And she's like, no, I can do this. Yeah. And then you're like, okay. With me, it was like, here, here's a gun. Here's your foot. Right. Right. But Pull that's trigger. but that's the magic of 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 what was it? Uh, you know, trying getting to the middle, like oh, a slow rise to the middle. Yeah. Like uh, people like us, weird people. You know, we we tend to not think we can do better. Then no one would accept us in the in the real world. In our world, we can be accepted and loved and this and that, but it's it's and it's very freeing and it's very safe, but it's a weird self hatred thing, I think. Yeah, like an egomaniac with an insecurity complex. Yeah, right. That's yeah, the piece of shit in the center of the universe. Yeah, yeah. And so she was very well balanced, very healthy, right? And Aspirational she, she and, and believing in herself. Good for me. Nice. Yeah. She so was... what went wrong? Also, for, before you tell us what went wrong, tell us about writing that song. So I meet her and we just start writing songs like left and right. We write this song that I thought was so awesome. It was called Food Stamp Love. And the chorus went, I'm sick of your food stamp love. It was all about your lover doling out their love to you like you're on a government assistance program. Just perfunctory food stamp love. Nobody wants food stamp love. No. And I was like, this is it. Then we wrote another one called Daddy, She's a Goddess. And Jewel is very sick and twisted. People think like, it's Jewel, I believe in angels. No way. She is so funny and so dark. Like she will go there. So we wrote this song about a family that kidnaps this girl. And so the dad and the daughter can both make love to the girl. And it's called Daddy, She's a Goddess. Can we keep her tonight? Her wow. nose don't drip like me. <laughs> Daddy, can we, And we say we use her body as a dartboard. Like, and I was like, Daddy, She's a Goddess is going to be a hit. None of those songs obviously were hits. So we go down to Mexico and we end up going down uh, as far as we could go down Baja California. Because in San Diego, you're 25 minutes from the border. So I was constantly going to Tijuana and buying, you know, Valiums and everything. Well, I go down with Jewel and if I'm with her, I'm not abusing drugs. You didn't have a benzo habit though. No. I, you know, I never had a benzo habit and I appreciate the fact that and especially like the listeners you have out there and I everything. had a terrible benzo habit. I know you did. Terrible. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Benzo, pot, none of that stuff. My thing was cocaine and alcohol. Right, right, right. From right. the moment I'd get alcohol, I'd want more. Would you use benzos for the coke though? Yes. But it wasn't an everyday thing. No, I only used benzos to help me with the coke. And you wouldn't do the coke every day. 
No, I was weird. I it was really easy for me not to drink. My problem was if I just had one, I wanted a thousand and I'd go get cocaine and I'd go MIA for days and I'd keep doing it like a lab rat hitting the feeder bar. But I had no problem just not drinking. I could I used to always go, oh, I'm going into my self-imposed rehab. I told my friends. I could go 60 days without drinking, and then I'd say, this time I'm not gonna do coke if I drink. And then the moment I did a Guinness and I'd have a shot of Jägermeister, I'd go, can you get some blow? Right. And I was on. Right, so you drive down to Baja. So we drive down to Baja, and we're going down, and I start speaking to this guy. I go, donde esta una playa con olas grandes? Where's a beach with big waves? Right. And this guy goes, oh, in esta dirección, pero no olas grandes. Porque es el Golfo, Golfo de California, on the Gulf of California side, it splits over. Goes, I figured Golfo of California. Yeah, and he goes, Gulf but pero muy bonito playa. And so he but goes. But very beautiful beach. Yeah, he goes, pero peligro es muy peligroso. Very dangerous. You know yeah. what they call me at Katz's Deli? Señor Peligroso. Mm. I gave myself that nickname. I like that nickname. Thank you. You can use it in a song. So Senor I drive Peligroso. down. I like Señor Peligroso. So I drive down, and I realize we're on a drug strip where they fly in drugs. You know, it's a dirt airstrip and there's skull and crossbones signs saying like, keep out. And we keep driving. We end up in this place called Bahia de San Luis Gonzaga. And there's an old hotel there and we kick the door open to one of the rooms. We fall asleep in a bed, king size bed with Mexican blankets. Nobody was behind the desk. Wake up and we realize this place is beautiful. And that was when Jules said, I want to go whale watching. So we go out on the beach out of the blue came these four Mexican federales down the beach and they go, would you guys like to go whale watching? And they had a boat and it was like God sent them to us. So we go out on the water and I go, what are you guys doing? He goes, we're looking for drug smugglers. And I go, oh, it's peligro. And he goes, si, sí, it's muy peligro. And he gives us bulletproof vests. Wow. And I go, well, we're not going to go on a drug bus now. He goes, no, but you never know. Right. And then he goes, you don't have to wear this now, but in case we don't have time to take you to the shore. And then he gets a call and he goes, oh, wait, we got to go now. We don't, we can't take you to shore. I got really scared. He goes, you need to put on these vests now and here's a gun. Do you know how to work it? And he hands like these high powered weapons to us. And so the boats flying across the water like Miami Vice to this island. And you see these drug smugglers running. The lights are on on the boat, go flying up. The cops go running out and like five drug smugglers run and they caught one of them. And you were with them? Yeah, we're right there. And I got bulletproof vest on and a gun in my hand and they catch Did one Jewel of them. Did Jewel have a gun too? At first she said, no, thanks. I don't need a gun. I believe in angels. And then all of a sudden she saw those other guys running and she saw the cops with guns. She goes, excuse me, I would <laughs> like an AK-47. Right. So she gets a gun too. And then the boat goes up to the shore. They get the slowest guy and he tells them where all the weed's buried. So the cops have the guns out on all these other guys. They capture them and handcuff them. And then they make me walk over to the area where all the weed is. And I have to carry all these kilos over to the boat with the prisoners and i'm on a full-on drug bust in mexico i'm talking kilos and kilos of weed and you're senor gringo carrying all the fucking kilos and the drug smugglers are looking at me like i'm ripping them off like they want to kill me right and we get on the boat and we're isn't going this back. kind of weird that the cops wanted you to carry the dude it was bizarre so we get back to the shore and i go to the cops i go what can we go now? And he goes, yeah. I go, what are you guys going to do? And he goes, this is the largest drug bust we've had in years in this town. And there was so much weed. They had to get another boat to go get more of it. And I go, what are you guys going to do? And he goes, we're going to have a party. And so I go, oh, okay. And I go, well, we're going to get out of here. And he goes, Esteban, ven aquí, which means Steve, come here. And I go, what? And he goes, take some. 
And I go, take some what? And he goes, of the weed. He goes, take some. And I think I'm being set, set up. up. Sure, I would. And think I that's go, it. no thanks. no thanks. And Jules digging her fingernails into me, and she whispers in my ear, "Do not take any." And it's getting really tense. And the cop opens up a switchblade, and he just holds it up, and he stabs one of the kilos open. And he goes, "I said take some," and it was like that scene in like Blood Simple, a Coen Brothers film or something. And I could smell the Mexican dirt weed wafting yeah, through yeah, the air. Yeah. So I take my skinny little fingers and I stick it into it to the kilo to pull out what I figured is less than an ounce. Right. And I pull it out and he goes, no, take a whole kilo. And I go, a whole kilo? He goes, take the kilo. And he's holding this knife at me. And I go, okay. So I take the kilo. I put it under my arm. He opens a beer, hands it to me. I still have a gun. I'm holding a gun. And then he goes, let's take a picture. Oh, God. So we have our arms around these cops, me, Jewel, and these Mexican Do you have the picture? Pictures are online. If you Google Jewel drug bust photos, you'll see us. It was like 1993, maybe 94. And so we go back. I got this kilo of weed. And they go, see you later. And I knew they took the pictures and stuff. And so we ended up getting the pictures. And... uh as we're walking down the beach, Jewel goes, you gotta give that weed away. We're going back to America. You cannot try to bring that across the border. I'm not gonna see you in jail. It's gonna be like Midnight Express. And you know, this is back before you could buy weed at the Apple store. I mean, I'm talking this is the I, early no, I, I, I remember. This shit'll send you to jail for, for life. For sure. I'm surprised so, like you didn't get busted I'm as soon walking as you down took the it. beach holding this kilo and I see How this, big is the kilo of weed? It's big. It's you like know? a pillow it's, or something? Yeah, it's under my arm. I just see this skinny yeah. guy with the big And I'm pillow. walking down the beach, so I walk up to this old woman, and she's like 80 years old, and she's just slowly stirring a pot of spaghetti sauce. And I go, ¿Quieres marijuana? And she goes, Si, sí, por my glaucoma. And she takes it, and she pours it all into the spaghetti sauce. No way. The Dude, whole kilo? I, the whole kilo. And she's stirring it around. Next to her is a chalkboard. And the chalkboard says, welcome Mormon youth group for spaghetti feed. Stop. I'm not kidding you. And she just thinks this is normal. And she pours it in. And I go, you can't do that. And she goes, it's good for everyone. And so I go back to the hotel room, because it's right by where this woman is, to go back to the room. And then Jewel goes, we should get out of here. And I go, well, let's just stay one more night. Just have spaghetti before so we go. So we go out there at midnight. And the Mormon kids are like playing frisbee. Half of them are like in bathing suits. Some are naked. Right. Everybody's just like th going nuts. And so I went back into the hotel room and I grabbed the guitar and Jewel was sitting on the bed. And I grabbed the guitar and I. Uh... This is a very exciting moment. This is the first storyteller's edition of Dopey. I can't believe the stories you have, Steve. I can't believe that. So I'm sitting on the bed and I go, she goes, do the thing where you make up a song. And I go, all right. Cause we'd been writing so many songs. We were so comfortable together, you know? And so I look at her and I just start going. the clock is 6 a.m. I feel so far from where I've been. So that song gets born, right? 
and I just writing it and writing it, and she starts singing words too. And the whole thing's getting so crazy. And it's like it's a musical, right? So I look at her and I'm just like, man, this is a cool song. And she goes, we're not gonna pulsarize this song. Meaning goes, like make song, it weird about food stamps and stuff. Make somebody die, you know, some death at the wrong time. And so I go, we're not going to pulsarize it. I go, make it about a stalker. You were meant for me. And I was meant for you like a stalker. It's very uh, needle in the damage done, right? Yeah. And who's I was influenced by. So I look at her and I'm like, And right. she covered that. I never really connected that. I hear the clock at 6 a.m. I feel so far from where I've been. I got my eggs, I got my pancakes too. Got my maple syrup, everything but you. I break the yolks, make a smiley face. That's a Steve Pultz line. I kind of like it in my brand new place. I wipe the spots off of the mirror, don't leave the keys in the door. I never put wet towels. On the floor anymore, cause dreams last for so long. Even after you're gone. And I know that you love me, and soon I know you will see you were meant for me, and I was meant for you. So those harmonics there that go. When we did that, we were at Neil Young's Ranch Coordinator, right? And I go. And Ben Keith, the producer, who was in the Stray Gators, goes, what was that? And I go, just some little harmonics. And I thought, I go, I don't have to do it. He goes, no, I really like it. Let's get it clean. So I go. Here, do it again. Yes. <laughs> and you... There it was. So it's funny. The only reason I show those harmonics because it got used in an episode of The Office with Steve Carell. Okay. <laughs> Dude, so how much of the song came together immediately? The whole thing. Right then. Like, we wrote it. It took, like, a couple of hours. We were just trading lines to each other, you know? Um, not lines, but, you know, lines of a song. I get it. And I would sing a line. So I'd look at her, and I'd, I'd say something. Like, it was a true co-write. So I'd look at her, and I'd go, I called my mom, but she was out for a walk. I consoled a cup of coffee, but I didn't want to talk. Picked up the paper, it was more bad news. More hearts being broken, more people being used. Put on my coat in the pouring rain. I saw a movie, but it wasn't the same. It was happy. I was sad, made me miss you, oh so bad cause dreams last for so long, even after you're gone, and I know that you love me and soon I know you will see, you were meant for me. 
And I was meant for you. So at that point, we're like, should we write a bridge? This is kind of a cool song. And Jewel goes, I think we need a bridge. So we went to the A minor seventh. I go about my business and I'm doing fine. Besides, what would you say if I had you on the line? Same old story, not much to say. Hearts are broken every day. Oh, did you know it was a hit right away in your no, head? No, I had no clue. I thought Food Stamp Love was the hit. <laughs> well, I really did she did. know? Did, she, did Jewel know? She kind of did. She man. knew. She has better pop instincts than I have. Well, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, what happened? So so we write the song. Is there another verse? Yeah. Or do the last verse. So one thing leads to another. We write another verse, right? Uh-huh. And I didn't know this song was going to take us to Woodstock 99, you know? I didn't know it was going to sell 15 million records. I did 50, not know. Listen, I'm sitting here in some hotel room with you, and you're playing me this hit song that you wrote. It's very magical for me, just so you know. So what's weird is I didn't know it was like sitting on the winning lottery ticket. It's it so really good, It really was. It's a great song. So then we go, we need one more verse All right. to come out of it. So we go, we need one last verse. So we go, I brush my teeth, I put the cap back on. I know you hate it when I leave the light on. I pick a book up, turn the sheets down, take a drink and a good look around. Put on my PJs and I hop into bed. I'm half alive, but I feel mostly dead. I tell myself it'll all be alright. I shouldn't think anymore tonight cause dreams last for so long even after you're gone I know that you love me and soon I know you will see you were meant for me and I was meant for You were meant for me, and I was meant for you. Yeah. So it was crazy because the song ends up, she gets a record deal. So she takes my advice, finds a little coffee house, and starts playing there. Man, you don't play with her though. I would just show up if I wasn't on the road, and I would sit in with her, and we'd do whatever new song we'd written. But it was all her. It was all her following. This was all Jules' work. She would go out on the boardwalk at Mission Beach and hand out flyers and go, "Hi, I'm Jewel. I'm playing tonight." So it's all these surfer dudes are coming because she's beautiful. Right, right, right. These. It was like a really young. She tapped into a moment. Yeah, you know, like sure. way before TikTok or anything, a viral moment before the internet was happening. Well, it was her. It was, it was her. her. And, and I mean, the tune was was there. But and I mean, she, she was... had a lot of songs and a lot she wrote, and they were great. Like, I was lucky to meet her and be a part of that ride. And together, we created a song that was big. But man, I'm telling you, it was insane. So the next thing I know, Neil Young 
hears about how, it. How? How does? Where does okay, he show so up? Okay, so what from? happens is Jewel ends up getting this manager named Inga Weinstein. So Inga Weinstein starts managing Jewel. She hears about her at the coffee house, and so she starts getting all these labels to come down, like Tommy Mottola, uh from whatever label he was, Sony. Sony, yeah, Sony, and then Danny Goldberg, who was running Atlantic Records, comes down, and then Danny somehow slips. I think it was Danny slipped a demo tape to Neil Young, and Neil Young goes, "This is really good. I want her to open for me." And uh, he goes, "I want to come down and see her." So Neil Young comes down. When's the first time you meet Neil Young? I met him when we went up to record there. What was that like? That was epic. Like we lived at his ranch to make that record. Like so, he invites her to come to the ranch and make the record with the Stray Gators as his band. But does he like when you're hanging out with Neil Young? Does he like make small talk? Does he talk to you? Like what's he like? What's it? What's the experience like dealing with? Neil Young and you've written you were meant for me with Jewel and you're and you're you're basically Jewel's boyfriend, right? Right. You're moving into his house. Like what's what's the the in and out of it like? So we're staying in his manager's house on his property, Elliot Roberts. Sure. And so we're staying in Elliot's house on Neil's ranch. And Neil has his own personal chef. They call him Cookie. And I could eat so much food because I was like this musician in the rug burns and you know. I didn't have a lot of money. And we get there and they have this chef. And they couldn't believe how much food I could eat. They used to weigh me before breakfast and after breakfast. And he would go, that was a four pounder right. that kid ate. So right. Neil would come in. We'd be in the studio. There'd be a piece of paper on the wall. Neil had drawn a picture of a horse. And in his scraggly Neil Young printing, it said, don't spook the horse. And then another thing said, echo is like garlic. You can never have too much because he loved Echo and he had built this echo chamber underneath a, a concrete square underground and we had dropped a mic in and he would use that as his echo. Wow. He was obsessed with sounds and he had all these Lionel trains, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his son who had, uh, I think, cerebral palsy, yeah, Ben, yeah. and he was married at the time to uh, Peggy Young and they just had this whole vibe there. And so when he would come in, like he had all the, uh, barn with all his old Cadillacs and cars and he was thinking electric way back then. He was a nice guy though. Was I he normal? I wouldn't say he was nice. I would almost say he was spectrumy. Like and right. I know that word gets used a lot, like very highly focused and if you could make him laugh, that was a good deal. Right. He was very like Did you make him laugh a lot? You tried, I bet. <laughs> well, a funny story is this. At the time we were making that Right after Jewel started to break big, I got a record deal with Mercury Universal and Danny Goldberg, who was with Atlantic, moved to Mercury and signed me. And I had made a record called Answering Machine and it was 56 songs and they were all 45 seconds and it was all my outgoing messages on my Answering Machine and it had seven bonus tracks. And this guy who was running this little punk rock record label in San Diego called Scamorama Records, he had signed a band called The Dragons, which is Mario Escobedo, his brother's Alejandro Escobedo. Sure. And so he had this little punk rock label and he put out my record answering machine. 
And I had just done a cover shoot with Henry Deltz, the great famous photographer. Yeah. And Gary Burden did the artwork. Gary Burden's now deceased, but he did every Neil Young album cover. He was really cool. And Gary and uh, Henry, Henry Deltz would do stuff together. Henry did that classic Crosby, Stills, and Nash cover yeah. on the porch. And he was in Modern Folk Quartet back yeah, in the day. Yeah. He was like, he's still alive. He's a good friend of mine That's still. That's awesome. So he had slipped my CD answering machine on when Neil Young was over having dinner. And Neil was like, what is this? Because it's 45-second songs, very lo-fi. And they were like, oh, this is Steve Pultz. And then he was like, the guy that was with Jewel? Yeah. And Neil then was like, I have to have this, and took it. He loved answering machines, so he liked to laugh. He just was very, I was always sort of very reverent around him and just kept my mouth shut. Right, that makes was, sense. It was Neil Young. Yeah, yeah, But yeah, I was yeah. honored that he wanted that CD. It's awesome. So Neil then goes to Jewel, why don't you come open for me? Before the record's out, he has her open for him at Madison Square Garden, two nights sold And you out. played with her? I just went out with her. But you, she wasn't playing with the band. She was just by herself. Playing solo. And she would nail it solo. I bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She would call me out sometimes to play You Were Meant For Me with her. Like She did a whole tour opening for Peter Murphy from Bauhaus, which is the weirdest double bill I've ever yeah. heard of. And yeah. it was awesome. And she would call me out on stage with her to play. But she opens for Neil Young. And she's about to go on stage. And Neil goes, how you doing, Jewel? And she goes, not too good. And he goes, why not? And she goes, because I'm about to open for Neil Young at Madison Square Garden and it's sold out. And he gave her this great advice that I still use to this day. He looks at her and he goes, ah, it's just another hash house on the road to success. Show him no respect. It was badass. I love it. And and but let's let's not forget something here, Steve. Yeah, you're a horrible alcoholic. Yes. How is that? Where where's the alcoholism on this road trip? On this Jules ride to becoming a pop star, a rock and so, roll star, whatever. The Jewel thing starts kicking in big. Yeah. It starts really kicking in. And in the meantime, I'm on the road with the Rugburns, drinking, drugging, carousing, you know, meeting up with Jewel. You how know. how committed were you guys to each other? Um, I don't know. I think we were both sort of a little bit open. We didn't discuss stuff, you right, know. Right, right, right. I mean, you're hippies. Yeah, it was hippie artists, free hippie in love. love yeah, type you do of thing. Your thing. Yeah. So we're out there on the road, and then we'd meet up. But here's the problem: I started falling in love so hard, like I did for the other Alaskan, and then. Whenever you fall in love too hard, yeah. you get needy and clingy. Mm -hmm. And it, and I knew it was happening. I could see Especially it. Especially, though, with the success and her beauty. It's like a lot. Yeah, I could feel a little bit like... And then Inga wanted her to be single, her manager. So, Do you think Inga knew you were an alcoholic needy train wreck? I don't know if she did or not. She might have. She like might the Rugburns were wild. Right, you know? right We yeah. had a very wild reputation. I'm sure you were a lunatic. So one thing leads to another. We go back to L.A. Jewel gets a gig opening for Liz Fair at the Wiltern Theater. So I think it was like two nights at the Wiltern. And I was a huge Liz Fair fan. Exile and Guyville was like my gold standard. So we do Leno. And at the Leno taping, all of a sudden backstage is Sean Penn and Ingo brought Sean Penn there and Sean Penn then comes to the Liz Fair show and then afterwards invites us up to his place in Malibu oh, and man. he had just split up with Madonna and their mansion had burnt down and he's living in an Airstream trailer he's got a broken nose 
and I'm with Jewel and Sean Penn. Sean Penn's like, play me some songs on guitar. So Jewel's playing, I'm playing. Sean's just talking to me. And then we smoke a joint, me and Sean, I'm getting drunk. And then I see the future. I was like, I pissing next to Sean Penn, uh, you know, outside of his Airstream. And we're both standing side by side with our dicks out and shit. And I was like, holy fuck, this guy's gonna steal her from me. <laughs> I saw the future, I was high. Sure enough, then the next uh, week later, I'm on the road with the Rugburns, I call up and then I call her room at the W Hotel in New York and Sean Penn answers and I go, Sean? And he goes, Steve? And he goes, oh, here's Jewel. And then I, my heart was Bro, crushed. Uh, Even though, you Were know, you paranoid about it up till then? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying I was the best you know what I mean? It was like now I get it. It was free hippie love in a way. So I'm not saying this to paint a bad picture of her because it's no, I, so I hear you. It's just that's the way life goes. And then next thing I know, she's flying to Con Film Festival with Jack Nicholson and Sean Penn, and I, how can I compete with that private jet? And then I remember I was in the Midwest with the Rugburns, and I was so heartbroken. I couldn't even look at a store when it said Jewel Osco Drugstores. <laughs> I was go, why do they torture me? Right, right. I, I go, warn me if, if you see one coming up. And they would go, duck, duck. So then I'm in the video. It's everywhere. Everybody's going, that's the dude from the Jewel video. I'm heartbroken over the fact, and is, I'm playing with the Rugburns. Is money I, coming in from you or meant for me? Yeah. To you? Yeah. So Huge checks. Right. So now I can do anything I want. I'm in the Rugburns. I start getting big checks. Were you still touring with Jewel too or no? At the time she was touring alone and then she brought out the Rugburns for a quick tour to back her because she needed a band real fast. And then she hired- Was a, she with Sean on that tour? They were on and off. In fact, she wrote a cool song about Sean Penn called Carnivore. Don't ever trust your heart to a carnivore. Sean's with her, but like he's kind of with everybody. He's Sean Penn. I'm on the road with Rugburns, and I'm just like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? So we go out on the road, and I'm drinking, and that's when I have like this unlimited supply of money, and we're drinking every night. And you also have an unlimited supply of misery. Yes, exactly. And I'm drinking heavily and i'm just getting fucked up on stage doing crazy shit you know always getting naked on stage getting in fights you know getting stiffed by club owners getting the power turned off on us because i do such wild i would just do stupid shit and i'd be song over i'd play a show laying flat on the ground and then next night i'd be naked on stage one night i'd eat a whole loaf of pot bread and be so stoned i couldn't even play one song because i'd be laughing so hard and then we got to do a show with tommy stinson uh, from the replacements yeah. and we destroyed the bar it was called the dragonfly in la and i tried to get the club told people to set the tables on fire and we got kicked out and our manager at the time our booking agent goes great i had people from william morris there caa Tommy Stinson wants nothing to do with you. CAA <laughs> wants nothing to do with you. William Morris wants nothing to do with you. Basically, we're fucked. Good job, Steve. So it was that kind of shit. Yeah, yeah, and we yeah, saved yeah. that recording of it. I got to find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, basically, we're fucked. You've ruined everything. Everywhere we go, we're just leaving a trail of like bad fucking crazy vibes. But people are, our shows are packed because we're just, our shows were fucking wild. They were really fun. Well, it was some crazy punk rock folk ethos. Something yeah. Like that cool I don't know place. if it was punk or folk. It was our own. 
I feel like we fit on Zappa's label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. fit in our that Mojo Nixon crazy town. Yeah, thing. like my wife says, your fans are all misfits. She goes, you attract misfits. Well, that's the dopey nation too. So I yeah, think that's like, why I'm enjoying. We weren't it so in a much. club. I was never in the cool punk club, nor was I ever in the cool folk club. Folk club. No, I can tell. I. <laughs> that's in, why I think in I'm. In fact, gravitating. the folk club didn't yeah. want anything to do with me because right. I played a show for this woman and for some reason i decided to take off my clothes and rub twinkies and ding-dongs on my naked body and basically she banned me from shows i wasn't doing it to try to cause trouble i just loved coming up with these ideas so i was on the road with jewel and her band and i picked doug pettibone as the electric guitarist and we have this killing band tony hall on bass who was in the funky meters and had played with uh, all these people brady blade on drums who had played with emmy lou harris the band was killing so we're touring everywhere, Singapore, Malaysia, Japan, all these places, New Zealand, Is Australia. there no tension between the two of you? So now I'm single, and she's dating a rodeo guy named Chris Douglas. That was the guy? That was the first rodeo guy. He was an actor and a model and a rodeo guy. But then she meets the real rodeo guy, Ty Murray, who she ended up marrying and have a kid. Now they're divorced, but at the time. And this guy was a badass. This guy's right wrist was thicker than his left wrist from holding on. He was a bull rider. Right, 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 like, right. And he was strong and fucking crazy. Right. And I got so drunk with him one night in the MGM Grand because he had poker chips with his name on it because he's a famous, he's in the Rodeo Hall of Fame. Okay. And me and him got so drunk, we were playing blackjack in our boxers and they did not kick us out because he was that famous. We're in this two-story suite in the Were you MGM. not like obs obsessed with jealousy and resentment and craziness? I'd gotten over it. It was over. It was over. And I- You, we, you accepted the situation. I accepted you the situation. You had a killer guitar gig where you make a shit ton of money. Jules, it's over. But you had, I mean, you wrote, you were meant for me with her. So but I way. loved her in a different way. I loved her in a way where I wanted good things to happen to her. I used to tell her, I go, I'd take a bullet for you. Like I loved her, but we were no longer together, but we were great friends. Uh -huh. And so we're playing and, and doing all these shows. And that's when my drug use really kicked in. On the tour? Yeah, because my friend who was playing electric guitar, Doug Pettibone, who plays for Lucinda Williams, he's played in I John feel like Mayer's I know band. his name from somewhere He's like else. a famous yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doug Pettibone, he's great. Yeah. And me, him, and Brady Blade were doing so much drugs. And that's when... When that's, when crack, about, that's when the crack comes in? Well, no, that's when I got addicted to... So when you asked about the benzos, I did get addicted to codeine promethazine cough syrup. Yeah, 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 I became a cough syrup addict where I had a doctor that traveled with us on tour that I brought and he would write prescriptions. So I would get Xanax to help me come down from the Coke. And now I'm able to get Coke all the time because I'm with Jewel on tour. And me and Doug Petty. But you know, Jewel isn't on stage being like, does anybody have any drugs? No, she wants nothing to do with it. Right. She's healthy. Right. And I'm doing so much coke every night with Doug Pettibone and Brady Blade. One time we were in Melbourne and me and Pettibone were passed out in a king size bed after draining the mini bar. And I got drank so much codeine promethazine. Pettibone Is that, was, that's lean? What's that? Is that what they call lean? I think that's lean. Is it lean? Yeah. It's like the greatest high yeah, yeah, yeah. for me. For someone like me, it helps me sleep and it makes me feel just right. The I codeine. think that's lean. Or it might be that, that that's the main ingredient in scissor. 
You know about Scissorp? Is that what like a lot of hip hop dudes yeah, would yeah, drink? Yeah, 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 like Lil Wayne. Yeah, and stuff. exactly. Purple drink. Yeah, purple drink. That was what I was into. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd chug it out of the bottle. That's coating. the kind of thing that I would have loved. I never got to do it, dude. It was perfect for me. Okay. And so I was hooked on that, and I would get headaches if I couldn't find it. And then I was always doing cocaine because we were in Jules Band, and the promoter, you know, everyone in coke, and yeah. money, and you had money, money. And I didn't even ever have to pay for it. People were always giving me Coke, you know? They wanted to party with me all night long. And I would find myself in these weird situations, you know? And so I passed out. And one night on tour in Melbourne, or Sydney, they had to call the police and fire department to break into the room because we weren't there for sound check. And I was in bed, and Pettibone was in bed, and we're just passed out. The mini bars destroyed. And they have to spray water on us and I have to go to the show. And we didn't get fired, which is crazy. I don't, you know, Jewel was very cool. She you loved know? you. Yeah. And she, she, I think you probably made her feel safe. I think so in a weird yeah, way. Yeah, of course. Even though you were not a safe person. No. <laughs> so I was just drunk all the time, man. When, when does the crack come into the picture? So then we go on this tour and it's going great. We're playing everywhere. And then eventually like all things they end it was like a three-year-long tour and it ended and that was when i started going back out on the road again alone and staying in trailer parks and i was in a volkswagen van so i hook up with these friends of mine from new orleans they're a band i used to tour with in the rugburns and they're called dash rip rock and so so what happens but before you get there the jewel tour ends yeah and she moves in with the rodeo guy and she oh, like yeah. takes a break so yeah she moves in with the rodeo guy Ty Murray and... Um, Did she never say, I want to write more with you? It just never happened. You know what's weird? After it got really big, we didn't write anymore together. We just recently started writing again. It was almost like there was too much pressure for another You Were Meant For Me or another hit, and I didn't like the feeling of it. It wasn't fun anymore. I mean, probably before You Were Meant For Me, it wasn't about trying to come up with some hit. Right, it, it was it just, just playtime. And, and it was a good time. And you were two musicians who were in love and loved making music and coming up with shit. And then you guys mined gold. And it's probably your worldview that wasn't like, let's let's just woodshed and fucking come up with another hit because that's not how you are. You know yeah. what I mean? Other people would have been like, let's just fucking come up with another hit. But it's like, that's not, that's not what you do. Had I wanted to, I could have of parlayed course. that into like a great co-writing situation. Of course. Had I been healthier. Right, you weren't healthy. No. <laughs> I love the look. You, I wish I, people could see the look on your face. I was Listen, not healthy. See, I, I want to just tell you something, right? <laughs> I don't know you very well. And and first of all, this is one of my favorite interviews I've ever gotten to do. <laughs> I've interviewed a lot of people, a lot of worse drug addicts than you, but you're just such an amazing storyteller. And you're so willing to be truthful that I'm in awe of, of this. So I want to just thank you before we get to the horrible crack part. I also want to say that the thing that makes interviews good is openness. And you, us talking about like why you didn't write another song with Jewel or another hit with Jewel, and I see your face actually thinking about it is the greatest thing in the world to me. So thank yeah. you. Do you know what I'm saying though? Because most people don't fucking do that. Most people have their thing that they need to say. They don't mention that Sean Penn stole the girl while you're pissing with him. It's like, you're fucking great, Steve. You're fucking great. <laughs> so 
I wish that I had done those other co-writes with people. You know, I was meeting everybody. I was meeting the guy who played James Bond, uh, Daniel Pierce Craig. Brosnan. Oh, Pierce Brosnan. Was he a musician? He liked Julie. He would come to the shows. And I was meeting Russell Crowe. I was meeting Barbara Walters. Like, I didn't know. But they weren't going to co-write a song. No, but I just didn't know how cool everything was at the time. What it is is we don't realize that it doesn't last unless we force it to last. Yeah. And nobody told you, and you were all fucked up. Yeah. But look, I mean, you have, I mean, like, dude, just to be clear here, Dopey Nation, me and Steve recorded in my room yesterday, which was a piece of shit. And now we're in Steve's suite. <laughs> you know, so it's like you have it pretty good, even though you didn't do that. So fuck it. So, right? Yeah. All right. Good. In this line of work we're in, right? I just last week was in the shittiest hotel you've ever seen in Kingsville, Ontario, Canada with a bunch of people high on fentanyl next to me and me freaking out, trying yeah. to just go, fuck, is somebody going to come here and stab me to death? So one day in this business, you're a prince. Another day, you're a pauper. So no, right now I'm living like a prince because this festival put me up in a nice place. The last festival didn't. And I'm living in like a lesser prince. <laughs> I'm not living like a pauper. No, you're not in that hotel in Kingsville. But of course, also when when you came into my room, I had like an ironing board. <laughs> did you, did you, did you yeah. notice that I had an ironing board out and the yeah. iron and all sorts of garbage everywhere? It's not a good look. Um, all right, so you, you regret a little bit not mining the situation but that's how things are and how do things decline at this point so everything it seemed like i started making promises to myself and my promises were i'm not going to drink for 30 days right that way if i do drink again i'll be able to drink and not do coke and i would hang out at this club in san diego called the casbah and i would show up at the casbah and it was just like everybody was doing coke there and I, I remember one night I went in and I was like, oh, I can trust myself to drink again because I've given myself 30 days off. I won't do coke. And immediately after my first Guinness and shot of Jägermeister, I said to my friend, can you get some? And he goes, oh, I got some in the office. And I went back there and I started snorting it. And some guy had come out of the bathroom there, had to take a shit because, you know, I always have to take a shit after you do a line. Yeah. And it stunk so bad I vomited on the floor of the office of the Casbah. So I had to do a makeup show to get rid of the smell of puke. They used to call me Rocket Man because I'd be walking around the Casbah like like a rocket all gacked out of my head. And so I was out on the road with this band called Dash Rip Rock and I was just lost. And I had put out my record. I'd gotten a major label deal and I didn't have the rug burns with me. And I hooked up with this band and we were in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm just drinking and doing Coke. And we run out of Coke and I go, let's go to a gay bar. You can always get Coke at a gay bar. So, which you can. So I'm walking up to all these guys that are in leather. Can you get me some Coke? Can you get me some Coke? Well, the word gets around. They throw me out into an alley. I get tossed out of the bar. And then I'm in the alley. And then there's these really hardcore looking black dudes in the alley. And I go, can you guys get me some Coke? Cause I'm just so drunk. Right. I approach anyone. They go, yeah, come with us. So I go with them. I'm in Atlanta and he goes, I can't get you any Coke, but we can get some crack. And I go, all right. So a week goes by. I don't even think I showed up. Maybe I did. I might've had a week off. I knew I had to catch a flight a week later. All I know is the sun went up and down so many times and I was in an abandoned field on a couch. I've never forgotten this with this old black man. And I just kept going, let's get more, let's get more. And we kept going to the ATM 
And I remember I'm this black guy, this homeless guy, I was having the greatest conversation with him and we're smoking crack and crack. Everything just goes so fast. You know, you just want more, more. Your lips are chapped. And I remember I was like, I remember having my fingers on his face and going, you are so beautiful. <laughs> and he was like, you're beautiful too. I go, but you're really beautiful. I want you to know how much I love you. you and he was like this 70-year-old crack-smoking dude. And he was like, you're I giving, love you. were giving rambling, rambling Jack Elliott eyes. Yeah, and he was like, I love you too. <laughs> and I go, let's hug again. And then I go, let's kiss. I'd kiss this guy. Let's go get more Coke or more crack. We get more crack. And we just sat out on this thing. And I was like, I got to get going. And so when I left, after doing crack for like a week, I was so shaky. And I had to get on this Delta Airlines flight. And I was next to this businessman. And it was like a 7 a.m. flight. And I, I still had crack cocaine on me, a little bit left. And I get on the flight and I'm shaky. And this businessman's next to me and he orders a coffee. And it's 7 a.m. And I go, could I get a double vodka? orange juice and the guy's looking at me and i chug it down can i get another one my hands are shaking and i go in the bathroom i try to snort the crack which is hard to do and i'm trying to chop up crack and then i sit back down next to the businessman my nose is bleeding i'm ordering more and he's like your nose is bleeding <laughs> somehow i made it to the the gig right and then shit just was like fast paced then where everywhere i went i needed drugs and so i started getting like and you had a ton of money still a ton and I would get shit free all the time. And so people were just like, I started getting letters from people. We're really worried about you. I play like a house concert and fall off a stool. I can only get like through three songs. I get these letters. You're going to, you know, we're really worried. You're going to die. You're drinking way too much. I was like drinking like Towns Van Zant or somebody like, cause I wouldn't go to sleep cause I'd be super powered on cocaine. Or if somebody had crack, I'd smoke crack with them. And then I'd do Coke, and then, oh, if you have cough syrup, give me the cough syrup to help me come down, or any kind of Xanax. And then I just kept doing it. And so then I got really close to this friend of mine who had written a song. I call it a hit song, but I was in the Rugburns. The closest thing we had to a hit was a song called Hitchhiker Joe. And so my friend Steve Foth was like my best friend, and I loved him. I loved him so much. And we wrote Hitchhiker Joe together, and then he and I would drink, and he lived in San Francisco and owned a record store called Rocket Records, and I'd go up there and drink with him. I'd fall asleep in his store, and then he started smoking crack. And then he started going out and getting hookers and going to these places where everybody would be smoking crack and just fucking and just, you know. Crazy be, crack sex den. Yeah, and he'd get beat up. So then I started getting worried for him. It was like the blind leading the blind. Right. So people start calling me going, we're worried about Steve. And it took the pressure off of me and made me feel like I was okay. Because he was worse. He was Seemingly. worse. Yeah, his record store was going under because next to it had a, a bigger record store it opened up. And he was using all his money to get crack and hookers. And then he's coming down to San Diego and seeing me. And I loved him. He was one of my dearest friends. And then he was with me one night right before the sun was setting and i was like we were drinking again as and he goes hey man i'm gonna get going and i was worried he was gonna go out and pick up a hooker and get some crack i go don't go don't go please don't go just stay with me and drink and i'll never forget he was leaving and the sun was setting 
He had borrowed this girl's Audi, a nice Audi. He immediately left me, went and picked up a hooker because the hookers could always get crack. And then that led them to these two really scary guys. And they ended up stabbing my friend to death. Oh my God. He went MIA, was my best friend. We're looking for him everywhere. He shows up in a lake, stabbed to death. I have to go down to the morgue to ID him. To this day, I still have bad flashbacks. I collapse at the morgue. And we have the funeral for him. I collapse at the funeral. I'm drinking. I'm shaking. Drinking from morning till night. My friend is dead. My best friend. I'm having a nervous breakdown. Then I go and smoke more crack. And then that was when that infamous day, somehow I landed in San Diego after being on a big cocaine crack binge. And I knew I had one call I could make to this attorney, Michael Wilson, who had gone through rehab. How did you know him? I used to do drugs with him for like three days straight and he ended up in rehab and so he was like steve you got to get sober it's the best thing that's ever happened how did he get the opportunity to say that to you oh because he would come to my shows all the time he was a huge fan of the rug burns and so he would come to the shows and see me on stage and he'd always say to me i'm saving a chair for you right meetings and i go no way i'm not doing that and then sure enough i come back and that was when i was like i had one call to make and I landed at the airport. I had like enough change. So I went to the payphone, and that was when he answers his own phone at his major law firm, of which he never answers the phone. And he goes, Wilson and Corbin. And I go, Michael. And then he goes, Steven. And he goes, You're not all right, are you? And I go, No. And I knew I had one time I was going to make this call. And he goes, You need to call this number right now and then call me back. And I didn't even have enough change to call him back. And then I called that place. And then I went into the rehab place for a meeting. They're like, you'll be dead in a week. I've seen this story. You need to start a program today. And then I did the 28 days. At that point, how how much did you want it? Like, did you actually, like, how did you know, like, did you know it was going to stick? Like, you hadn't been to detoxes or rehabs or anything. Never. You were just using and touring. I knew if I made that call, I was done. I surrendered because I got to the airport and I started having seizures. Like I had already OD'd a few years earlier where I got rushed in a hospital and they had a gem and IV of Valium and Demerol to slow my heart down. And they said, you were close to dying. And they were just yelling at me. And I'd go back out and I would start using again because it, it was going to stop my heart. And so the guy in rehab was like, you're going to be dead. And so I went, okay, I'm going to, I'm ready to give up. And he could tell I was. But the thing was, after 28 days, they graduated everybody except for me. And they were like, you got to do another 28 days. So I did the second 28 days. And the lawyer paid for all of it? Um, or no, you had dough stuff. I had dough. I paid for it. And I went. And I didn't want to go through insurance because it would have been a permanent mark on my record. So I paid cash. And then I got out and I had a show at the Belly Up Tavern. And they sent two guards with me backstage. Who sent? The rehab people. They go, you need, we don't trust you yet. And I could smell Jameson shots right. as, a, as a waitress walked by with like 10 of them on a tray. And I was like, I know that smell. And I play the tape to the end. It's going to lead to Coke. But I was done. It was weird. Like, I can honestly tell you, I will never drink again. I know it sounds cocky to say that. but You should never say it. You shouldn't, huh? I don't it's like so. asking for trouble. It's what's like you're the, the guy. You know, what's the point really? In the 
in the dog hole at, like Billy Crystal talks about in that movie. Which when which, I get home, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna see my gal Sally. He's in the foxhole yeah, in World War II. Yeah. And I can't <laughs> wait. We're gonna have the best dinner. I'm going yeah, home tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom. Exactly. Well, no, I should never say I'm never gonna do yeah, I, I I listen, I mean the guy, my friend Chris who died, who started the show with me, he he said early on in the show that he was recovered. And and he I went to treatment with him and uh i did 28 days and i was like i gotta go chris i think stayed there six months <laughs> something yeah. crazy you know so obviously you have tons of time i mean who am i to say to you don't say it but i mean like whatever you know no you're right you shouldn't say it might as well not say i it. think you're right and i'm not gonna say that anymore you know like i think you're only as good as each day you wake up i think that's anything can change like why why tempt fate <laughs> You know I'm what I'm saying? I just learned something from you. Thank you for saying that because I'm not going to say that anymore. I know one thing I will say today I don't want to drink. Sure. You, but you could say whatever you want. I'm just saying, like. No, I like your advice. I think it's good. All right. I good. think it's a little too cocky what I said, and I needed an adjustment. There's a reason I met you. Well, I think you, you met me to record one of the greatest dopey episodes in the history <laughs> of the show. And I know, and I, I don't usually go on and on like this, but I've really enjoyed this. Well, I've enjoyed um, being able to talk to you. Did uh, did you go to meetings right away? Like, what did you do? I went to meetings every single day, and I used to go to a place called the Huddle. And the Huddle was a great room of recovery. What it was was a restaurant in San Diego, but in the back room they had meetings at noon. And if you knew, you knew, and you would walk through the restaurant, and everybody in the restaurant who knew. Oh, there goes the bad people to the back room. Right. And back there, there would be priests. There would be dope addicts. There would be hookers. There would be businessmen. There would be lawyers, doctors. Oh, a really true cross-cultural place. And you'd go order your food and you'd have a meeting. And there was a guy back there who I still think about to this day. His name was Errol. And Errol was this black guy who was beautiful. And he worked at the airport. And like the control tower had a very good job and he was a recovering dope addict. Right. And he would always say in the meeting, my name is Errol. I'm an addict and an alcoholic and I'm very grateful to be here today. There we go. Hi, Errol. And he'd say, man, this shit is hard. You gotta be careful. But you know what I like about coming to these meetings? You can hear the weirdest shit and you can feel bad about something somebody did. I was at this one meeting and this guy raised his hand. He said, I'm sharing a story and I feel so bad. I feel like I can't even tell you. No, go ahead. You can tell us. I, last night I had sex with a chicken. And then another guy raised his hand and said, oh, I did that too. No, stop. <laughs> no, this is like Earl's story that he would tell. Right. This is his story. Like, I had sex with a chicken. The meaning at these meetings, you might think you're the weirdest person right, who did right. something, but there's always somebody else. So he'd always say, I'm very grateful to be here. Well, Errol went back out and took a hot shot and is now no longer on this planet. Right. And I watched how quick things can turn and how quick they can change. And I know... I never want to drink again because I really believe if I do, I will instantly try to go get an eight ball of Coke and an eight ball won't be enough. And at my age now, my heart won't be able to handle it. I've had a stroke in my life and it will be end of story and I don't need that. When was the last time you did Coke? Um, 18 and a half years ago. Absolutely. It'll be 19 years in November. I want to say one other thing that's kind of like blowing smoke up your butt. 
Most people with that much time are not so connected to the details of the story. I was thinking something this morning. Yeah. Like your story is so fucking far out. And the deep, like the plastics guy and the, I mean, every, every story is kind of like better than the <laughs> other one. And I'm like, this is, because I remember when we first met, you talked about microdosing math as a joke. And then, at the lab, you made a joke about microdosing. Yeah, math. I just came up with it when I met you. Yeah, and I, I know, was like, this will yeah, be a good yeah, bit. Yeah, I know. Uh, so then I was thinking this morning, did Steve make up everything he <laughs> said on the show? Is that possible? But you didn't make up everything. No. No, it's amazing. No, it's true. It's crazy. And I mean, and like, even if you didn't write You Were Meant For Me with Jewel, it would <laughs> still be incredible. But because you did... It is, and you played a song on the show. I'd say it's next level. Thank you for coming on the show. Man. Fucking blew me away. God blew bless me away. you, my friend. Blew and me away. I'm telling you, this has been good for me. I feel like it was a supercharged. Before we end this thing, Yeah, I would like to say, because I know some people are out there listening and yeah. everybody has their own journey. Uh-huh. And believe me, I am no saint, fine example to follow or anything. I don't claim to be. I would just like to say there was a prayer that I loved that really helped me that I used to say every day and read every day. And it was by this guy named E.E. E. Cummings. Okay. And a great poet. And uh, he wrote this prayer. Okay. And for me, when I first got sober, the hardest part I had with AA was the whole God thing. Yeah, yeah. Because I was raised very Catholic. And so I really wanted to make mention of this. I, I had to have a higher power, they said, when I was in rehab. And I had a problem with the God thing. So I made my higher power Neil Young because he was a power greater than myself. And they said, that's fine. And this is after all this stuff with Jewel and Neil Young. Yeah. And you still chose Neil to be your higher I power. Neil. I love Neil. Do you ever cross paths with him again? I did once at a wedding. And I said something really stupid. What'd you say? These tortillas are great. They taste homemade -y. And he looked at me and he didn't really remember me. He just said uh-huh and walked away <laughs> so along the way when i was going to meetings i found this prayer yes e.e e. cummings was he wasn't a religious guy and that's why it's what sold me on it and this prayer helped me and i just want to say it because if anybody out there is listening and they're like i have a hard time with that too this was just learning to be grateful and here's the prayer I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and a blue true dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I who have died am alive again today, and this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and of love and wings and of the gay great happening eliminably earth how should tasting touching hearing seeing breathing any lifted from the know of all nothing human merely being doubt unimaginable you now the ears of my ears awake and now the eyes of my eyes are opened that's beautiful and the son's birthday is s-u-n or s-o-n s-u-n yeah it's beautiful very beautiful. Apostrophe, yes. Yeah. And it might not help anybody. And some of you might be going, ah, wow. meh. But for me, it really worked. I really love this prayer of St. Francis, too. Oh, that's the one. I think that's the most beautiful prayer. 
and and when I'm lousy, like when I'm shitty and I'm not feeling good, I forget about it. Yeah. You know, and then you hear it again. You're like, fuck, why don't I read that every day? I know, right? You know, why don't I do it's that every day? It's the best. Yeah, it's like, why can't we do that every day? It's right there. Yeah. It's like, it's like all you have to do is read it and you feel better and you can be better. Yeah. And it, but I forget to read it. So I, mean, I hope that this podcast at least helps one person oh, or something. No, I'm not kidding you. Listen, I, it means a lot to me all, to be able to be on this. I want to thank you. I want to thank I you. I want you to know something. Yeah. I don't even hardly know you yeah. and I love you. Well, I love you. I hope we remain friends. We can you're do that. fucking awesome. We can remain friends. I think you're <laughs> awesome too. I wish you could come to Dopeycon for fuck's sake, but you can't. Dude, it's when crazy. is it? October 7th. In oh, New I'll York be City. in Italy. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right, dude, this was amazing. Toodles thank for Chris. You say stay strong, Dopey Nation. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. And fucking toodles for Chris. And fucking toodles for Chris. And thank you, Steve. Fucking awesome. Thank you, Dave. All right, that was Steve Poltz. And uh, first thing is, Steve Poltz is great. Second thing is, that's Steve Poltz at the beginning of the show, if you couldn't figure it out. And I love that Steve Poltz original jam. Uh, third thing is, the name Steve Poltz reminds me so much of the character on Arrested Development, Steve Holt. That show is funny, man. I watched that show just to relax. Um, hope you guys liked him. Please let me know what you thought. I'm dying to know what you thought. And I'm gonna play I'm gonna play an uncharacteristic voicemail at the end. It's this guy who calls himself Lou. He's a German guy, right? He's, how crazy was Steve Poltz's Jewel song or Jewel story with the federales and all that shit? I love that story. Now, here is Lou. Lou, again, is a German guy, and he just listened to episode 409 where Margaret Cho supposes that Dopey is as important uh, as Gabor Mate. And I wanted to bury this at the end of the show because who knows who's listening. I don't think that there's really a beef going on with Gabor Mate, but maybe I'm in a beef with Gabor Mate's uh, assistant because we were about to have Gabor back on the show. He had agreed to come back on the show, and she stepped in and said he's not going to come on. Like, I don't even know what happened. I don't know if we'll ever get him on again. Should we get his son on? Should we wait till next year? Does it not matter? I don't know. Here's Lou from Germany supposing that we might be as important to the world of addiction and recovery as uh, Gabor Monte. Here we go. Here's Lou. Yo, Dave. Here is Lou sending a voice note from Germany. I just listened to Dopey 409, and it's wicked fire. I, I have never been to Boston. I cannot do that. But I'm trying. I've been listening to Dopey for some years, and I'm trying to catch up. Uh, hopefully, I managed to catch up to speed before DopeyCon. Uh, it's, what, middle of September right now, and DopeyCon is coming up. Uh, Margaret Cho, she mentioned something, that Dopey is on level of Gabor Mate, and you, Dave, sounded... Uh, surprised or impressed with that and I do agree with that mm, I got to know Gabor Mate's work and Dopey from completely different sources and they I managed to absorb them both differently because of the relationship with each other uh, I believe that 
Dopey gets deeper once you've been through the realm of Hungry Ghosts and the Hungry Ghosts uh, hit a bit harder once you have the humbling experience of listening to Dopey and seeing how it's just people that are suffering through this. It's not any kind of special species that is far from our families. Uh, it, it, it just it hits strong and I think one work supports the other and I do believe that they're on a similar level of potency so with that keep up the hard work um i don't have a dopey story for now i i uh, i i did voice i did record once i was very high on cannabinoids and i recorded the tale of one of the times that i had ketamine and the thing is that the, i i was planning on just send the message as it was but it's like six minutes I thought it might be a bit on the long edge and maybe I, I need to trim it, but I never had the courage to go back sober and listen to it because I think I open up some vulnerabilities that I wouldn't. Uh, that's the perks of substances. Uh, yeah. But going back to the episode 409, I love the whole weed lube thing. I'm really curious about it. I I'm, I would love to try it out. And I was wondering, like, I don't know if, if anybody from the Dopey Nation reached out and told anything about it, uh, but I wonder how the whole exchange of feelings go. For instance, if somebody is not uh, wearing a condom, which would not be a behavior I would endorse. But if so was the case, I wonder how it feels for the male side or... For or for the the bearer of the penis, um, it just yeah fascinating. But yeah, I I hope I get to send another voice note soon. Until then, dopey nation, stay strong. I love you all, Dave. You rock. Keep rocking. Thank you, Lou. Uh, I appreciate the voicemail. I don't want to send socks to Germany, but if you cajole me hard enough, I totally will. And I think we've come to the end of another show. I forgot to advertise Patreon. Uh, this week on Patreon, we had a lot of stuff live and direct from Park City, Utah. I think next week we, we might have another show live and direct from Park City, Utah with the Sandwich King, Jeff Morrow. He did a weird dopey story. He's not an addict. Join Patreon, though, for Christ's sake, if you listen to the show. If you're still listening to the show now at 2 hours and 33 minutes and you're not throwing a couple bucks at Patreon and you're, and you're not wasted right now, you should consider it. My dad doesn't ask me anything. We just posted it. Fucking tons of John Bucati. More bonus shit is coming soon. Buy tickets for DopeyCon. Have a wonderful day. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. And thank you, Steve Poltz. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I wanna take a ride up in the sky. Watch this aeroplane just pass me by. 
And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very 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 hard to find and I wanna be good so bad wanna be good so bad so bad I wanna be good so bad bad desires all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to 